Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I'm Jinx, your co-host, and I am here with Paul Farrell. Paul, how the heck are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? What What the hell kind of Paul was, was that, Paul? Like what? Well, what, I was, was I was on mute, and I thought I wasn't on mute anymore. So I started talking, and then, you know, the rest is history. And now here we are. I'm off mute. Good God, man. I know it's a drinking podcast. You and I can both flub this up is, the rest. Uh, this is my first day, okay? The next... This is... <laughs> The next three hours, Just we can club up as show. much as we want. But <laughs> right at the very beginning, I don't know that our listeners... I, you know what? Let's just try it again. I've Let's try it again. one-third of an Alpine Alpine lager, okay? All right? that, that's, that sounds like beer. Is that beer? It's it's delicious beer. There's your problem. All right. So. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this again. And I'm probably going to leave all this in, so why even do it again? You know why? Should I mute again? No, you should not. <laughs> this is your opportunity to okay. redeem yourself, Paul. Right. Put the beer I down. pause, I promise. Get the ready. Going, here, listen. There it goes. I didn't okay. mute, so you heard the beer go down. Gonna softball this one to you. You ready? Yep. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts Hammer Pub. I'm Jinx, your co-host, and I am here with Paul Farrell. Paul, seriously, how the heck are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? You know, there was still a little bit of pause or whatever. It's fine. Uh, Paul, I, I gotta like, tell you. Yeah, well. I, no, I got, a, I got a problem, Paul. Okay, what's your problem? Okay, my problem is how the hell... Am I supposed to get my boar's head fixed here in Florida now that I have to boycott friggin' Publix? That's a problem. Yeah, Paul. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, it's a damn problem. Have you heard about this? No, no. Apparently, the heiress to the Publix chain, if restaurant chains can be said to have heiresses, is one Julie Jenkins Fancelli, and it's got to be said, no, no fucking relation there paul but okay. ms publix apparently donated 300 grand to trump's bullshit stop the steal rally you know the one the uh the one that incited the riot at the capitol where a bunch of you know assholes and hillbillies and hillbilly assholes tried to overturn a free and fair election just because their yeah. fucking cult leader told them it was unfair that he lost anyway right. paul boar's head what the fuck am i gonna do can it can it be ordered from a different establishment perhaps shipped i yeah uh, Ordered from a local establishment, probably not. Can't imagine Walmart and Aldi yeah, are going Walmart's to have Boar's Head, but uh, yeah. you know, maybe shipped. I don't know. You know, at the price it would take me to actually ship Boar's Head, pretty me. expensive. <laughs> but it's delicious stuff. I mean, might be worth it. Hey, Paul. <laughs> hey, Paul. Guess what else? What? What else? We have a guest on this week. Paul, you're very there. excited. Yeah, real. That's that's the amount of excitement you can muster. I, you kept like dropping out. I don't know what's going on. I'm very excited really? for our guest. I really am, legitimately, okay. because our commentaries are always better when we have a great guest in okay. in tow. That's that's better. Okay, so I don't know what's going on here, but uh, hopefully this uh, this episode will not be plagued with problems. We'll see. Fingers crossed. God willing. <laughs> All right, so freelance writer for Bloody Disgusting and Scream Queens, host of Horror in Session, Paul, listeners, me, please let's put all of our hands together and welcome Raina Cervantes to the show. Hi, hello. Raina, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on. I'm truly honored. Now, I've seen your tweets. I know you're a Hammer fan and a Hammer collector. Please let us know, how did you become a Hammer fan, and what's your favorite Hammer film? So, I want to say like around nine years old, I randomly watched on Turner Classic Movies, uh, Horror of Dracula. That's a good one to start with. Yeah, and I was like, oh, 
this isn't the one with Bella Lugosi. So I decided to watch it <laughs> and blew me away. Like I thought the ending was great. I just loved the set design. I loved just Van Helsing holding a crucifix up to Lucy's head. It's great. Um, I just wanted more of it. So this last year during quarantine, I was like, I'm going to buy that movie from the Warner Archive sale because I remember liking it. Uh watched it and I was like, oh, I need to watch like all of these. So I just like downright like bought all of them on Blu-ray. Nice. Um, unfortunately, it seems most of my hammer knowledge is the vampire films. I have yet to dive into most other hammer although i was like one of the lucky few that managed to get that hammer set for like 20 dollars from deep discount oh so, you and paul too. both i think i yeah. i got stuck paying about 70 bucks for mine can somebody please out there either here or out there in listener land explain to me how that box set's price has been all over the map it has been $70, it's been $110, it's been $12, $20, $50. I There's no explaining that to me whatsoever, I don't think. So from what I understand, that $20 price was a pricing error, and they just decided to honor, like, I think, like, the first, like, 100 or 200 orders of it. <laughs> um, yeah, because I heard that, too. Yeah, but there were way more orders than that for that price. Yeah. They um, they should have honored them all. Well, TCMshop.com tried to price match it and then realized it was a pricing error, so they removed the SKU entirely from their website. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is, I gotta say, that is a we've talked about it before on this podcast, but that Mill Creek set is just wonderful. So uh, which is funny considering that Mill Creek was not always, you know necessarily a sign of quality yeah. but over no, the course yeah. of the last few they've years come, like, they've come a long way i i am I, shocked by the mill creek turnaround yeah i i had so someone had told me to get the hammer set from mill creek um back when it was coming out and i was like oh mill creek they're the ones that did that like <laughs> awful halloween three pack that had like halloween h2o in the wrong aspect ratio like oh, yeah. yeah i'm like yeah. i don't want that but like I ordered this set and it came in and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually exceptional quality. Yeah, I was really impressed with the video quality on some of the movies I've seen on there. Yeah, they used to be. I, th I think I made the comparison once before, but I mean, they they really were for a time. They were the equivalent, uh, the Blu-ray equivalent of like Good Times video, you know, and Good Times DVD. Like they're, they were kind Oof. of the, uh, yeah, they were, they were, they were the. <laughs> Uh, the, the sort of bargain basement, like, you know, this title isn't widely available. Let's just slap it on a disc and throw it out there. But now, yeah, and, you know, and sometimes they go out of their way to put out an inferior product. Like you mentioned the Halloween movies. Like, I remember when they put out all of the Hellraiser sequels, you know, going past uh, Bloodline on Blu-ray. And it's like, oh, yay, those are all on Blu-ray. And then you find out that they just, for whatever reason, cropped them down to 177 from 185. And it's like, <laughs> why do that? Right. Yeah, they look legitimately bad, like awful. <laughs> I'll never uh, understand why a studio or a company re like reframes stuff. Like that that sounds like more work than just putting out the the right version. Like why would you go out of your way to make it worse? <laughs> so from what I understand, like uh 
Mill Creek with the Halloween one, um, those particular movies are the ones that were owned by Disney for a time, um, which are Curse, H2O, and Resurrection. Right. And uh, I guess the transfers that they gave them were the ones that were kind of formatted for television. So they just had to kind of work off of those. Nice. <laughs> I did not know that. That is, uh, that's awful. That is. <laughs> it makes happened. sense, but yeah, it's still bad. Yeah. 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 Thank, God for, thank God for Screen Factory for coming to the oh, rescue yeah. on, on those particular movies. Thank God for Screen Factory is something that movies, horror fans should say. Movies, day. especially. This is something that Hammer fans in particular should say too because <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, oh yeah so good um yeah i just got that brides of dracula one and it's like probably one of my favorite screen factory releases ever yeah oh my god yeah it's gorgeous 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 transfer for a gorgeous movie and of course the bonus features are just uh yeah. fantastic i went i went kind of on a hammer run here recently i bought all of the uh you know, between Screen Factory and Warner Archive and Mill Creek, I uh, purchased all the Frankenstein movies and all the Dracula movies and upgraded from the DVDs that I had. I have I followed Hammer for a while, like as a teen in the uh, in the 90s, I was picking up like the clamshell Anchor Bay VHS releases. And then from there, there were the DVDs. And then from there, you know, more DVDs a few years down the line. Uh, I think uh Synapse actually released a handful of Blu-rays back in the day before um, before Warner Archive and uh, Scream Factory actually dove in and started putting out what they're doing, which is just marvelous. But it feels like with all of these releases that Hammer is kind of better known now than it feels like it has been here in the States anyway for a couple of decades at least. Yeah, it feels like it's it's coming more into the forefront. Um, I think, like you said, it really helps that these uh, these companies with bigger footprints are are shining a spotlight on them. You know, obviously, the, you mentioned the work that Screen Factory is doing, which is yeah, also something I'm huge into. Um, you know, you can just take a look at what I write most of the time, and that, that's what I'm writing about. Um, so it's one of those things where it's awesome that they're doing it. It's awesome that horror fans are discovering it um, because I do think it's still for a lot of horror fans that, that think they've seen it all. I think hammer is a, a big undiscovered country. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So Raina, since you are our guest, just so you know, for you and new listeners, the structure of this podcast is such we, uh, we kind of re- you know, just yap about our recent watches for about 45 minutes, then we press play on a Hammer film, and we have running commentary while we have a drink or seven. Uh, now, Paul and I, our drinks are typically alcoholic, uh, but our guests and listeners can totally be teetotalers. Now, you mentioned you are drinking tonight as well. What was it you said you were drinking? Oh, uh, White Claw, uh, raspberry in particular, because I'm out of the good flavors. Oh, I love raspberry, though. You know, I've never had a White Claw. <laughs> it's, flavors. I love it. What? What is somebody explain to me like a poor old bastard that I am? What exactly is White Claw? So it is a hard seltzer water, basically an an alcoholic alcoholic water. So not uh not not beer is what you're saying. I I guess technically it's classified as a beer, but uh. it's not like traditionally brewed like a beer. It's like almost mineral water esque. Okay, I could I could maybe do that because beer is terrible, but 
Uh, you know, yeah. uh, it's it's getting dark in here with all the shades you're throwing my way, Jinx, <laughs> on, uh, on the beer. So I, I think we need to tone that down just a bit. Just I a bit. Paul, I can't. I will never let that Monster IPA go. You know what? You're talking about the Stone IPA? Yeah, Monster Stone. There was a monster on the cover. Look, I drank my way beyond the memories of that swill. I, I, I'm only left with a vague impression of what happened that evening. Uh, but I will say that it was so bad that you catching shade for just a couple of minutes every episode, I think I'm do that. Uh, you know, I agree think... to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, that said, what are we drinking this evening, everyone? Raina, you are doing the Raspberry White Claw, which actually sounds pretty good. Paul, you are drinking, what was it again? Uh, I got a Sam Samuel Adams mix pack. Uh, so right now I've got Alpine Lager, but I've also got some Boston Lager. I've got some Cold Snap. I've got some Golden Ale. You know, we, we, we're going to mix it up tonight. Well, you would have to with that amount. Good God, are you planning on getting sloshed? I, I'm, I'm planning on taking a trip to the Hammer Pub, you yeah. know, and we're just going to see what transpires. Okay, that's only fair. Uh, I am drinking, uh, I'm, I'm staying the hell away from 99 Proof Butter Shots uh, this week. Because uh, last week, you know, was uh, that was something, Paul. When we uh, finished uh, recording with Michael Verratti, I got to tell you, I stood up and walked around, and that was uh, you were uh, you were pretty something. pretty good last week. You you, you had a few. I did, yeah, yeah. No, it's kind of <laughs> crazy. Uh, I have reduced that this week. I am now drinking up more Bailey's because uh, it's it's just marvelous. But uh, I, I I've got a glass of uh, cherry chocolate Bailey's. And 50 proof banana liqueur. It makes a uh, Bailey's Sunday, and it is, uh, it's just delightful. And uh, I've got some Bailey's in De Serena. So, uh, that does sound good. I mean, every time you describe your jinx, jinx, like, see, unlike you, I can respect other people's drinks of choice. Well, mine are nice. They do sound delicious. Yeah. No, they are. I've, I feel like I should go grab like three or four more jinx so I, so I have them on hand. <laughs> No, I okay. I understand what what you're saying about having uh, potential reloads like on hand. I love that the way that that came off was that mine and Paul's bickering was driving you to drink more. So uh... <laughs> I'll just All right, it's well, only going to get worse. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, Raina, fair warning: the more Paul and I drink, the uh, it. Well, you'll see. Um, you know what, though? Let's go ahead and dive in. We're uh, God knows how many minutes into this commentary so far. Let's go ahead and jump into what our recent watches were. What did we watch last week? Raina, you're our guest. Let's go ahead and uh, let you go first. Oof, what have I been watching? Good Lord. A uh, little of everything. Uh, I watch... <laughs> It seems like lately I mostly watch movies that I'm covering on my pod, and like the few... like free time watches i get are like not that exciting like uh i know one of the recent watches i've been keeping up with is wandavision i'm fully caught up on that i love Um, it so much i've been watching that too it's actually a show i'm watching i'm sure yeah i i didn't think i'd be into it because i wasn't sold on the first episode but man episode three really hooked me i was like oh this is like this is like low key the best thing like the MCU has done since like either Thor Ragnarok or Guardians of the Galaxy one. Like I'm that into it. Yeah, it's taking like 
It's taking maybe the biggest swing stylistically that Marvel has done since beginning the MCU. Like it's, and I've got, I, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I have friends who don't care for it because they feel it's too slow and they don't, you know, they don't know why the show is going that route. And it's like, well, just give it a shot. This is, this is not a two and a half hour long movie. This is a narrative that's going to be stretched over the course of eight episodes. This is, uh, you know, think of it like David Lynch, you know, it's a mystery and it's strange and bizarre and we don't know how it could be this. And, but let's just hang on and see what they have to say. And then I, I, you know, one of the reactions I got was, uh, who's David Lynch. And then, you know, they're not my friend anymore, but <laughs> it's just, <sighs> But I will say, I, I my hats off to them for, you know, this is the first Marvel show that Marvel is doing themselves in house, releasing it on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. For this to be sort of the the pilot show for them, that's bold as hell to me. Yeah, it's like it's like the Mandalorian where it like sets the standard, and you're like, oh, good god, the the bar <laughs> is set really high now. <laughs> Yeah, and I agree that for me, like, um, and Jinx knows this, and I've talked about it before. I'm kind of like, uh, I, I like the Marvel movies and the the big action movies and things like that, but I'm not like the I'm not the audience for those. They're kind of not for me, um, I, and that's not like shitting on them or anything. That's just more me saying like I totally acknowledge that I'm not sort of it's not in my wheelhouse to be in love with superhero movies. So I'm not, you know, I, I try not to sort of judge them in that way. I, I did enjoy the run of them. I watched them all, but I have to say that the WandaVision and I was kind of wary to watch it for that reason. I was kind of like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of good. And I watched it and I really liked how experimental it was. I think you comparing it to Ragnarok and guardians is, is really apt because both Ragnarok and Guardians are some of my favorites because, again, they were huge swings. They were different. You know, they felt like they had an artistic thumbprint that that stood out against a lot of the other content. And I really, really like that WandaVision um, is just differentiating itself in such a huge way, while at the same time fitting entirely into the mythos that the movies built. So it's really smart, you know. They're they're not just doing something crazy; they're also doing something crazy that doesn't defy all of the mythology that that the movies lean so heavily on. So yeah, I, I really am enjoying it quite a bit. Yeah, as as like a big fan of like, I grew up reading tons of comic books growing up. Like those were those were my alley. Um, to finally have something with Scarlet Witch like front and center is. So super cool and and the fact that they keep kind of hinting at towards a house of m and whatnot i'm just like (laughs) oh oh give it to me (laughs) well i mean you know Uh, now that marvel has the uh you know x-men back i do you think we'll get that moment do you think we'll get uh no more mutants i think i think we're gonna get the opposite where instead of no more mutants, this might be the thing to bring mutants into the MCU. Oh, I could see that. I... Like, like it just kind of reverses like the House of M like twist on its head. No, I think see, that would be brilliant. 
See, in everything you guys are saying, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because I've never read <laughs> I <laughs> I've never read a Marvel comic book in my life. Like I I don't I've never read a comic. I, I and, and it's not because I don't, you know, I'm against it. I just, you know, I just didn't no one ever gave me one when I was a kid. I never got exposed to it. Um the closest I ever came was I collected the trading cards. Like I collected the, you know, Capcom nineties you know, and I watched the X Men cartoon on Fox Kids, like that. That was Da-na-na-na. oh yeah, yeah. So Children I loved, the, I loved X- the Adam. <laughs> right, I loved X Men, and I loved the movie and everything when I was younger. And I still like the X Men movies for that reason. But it was because the X Men were like the only superheroes I really knew about, and and it wasn't comics; it was like the cartoon show. So I remember when I went to the movie, I was like, "Where's Morph?" I was like, why isn't Morph in this movie? He's like one of the main characters. And people are like, oh, yeah, they made him up for the cartoon show. I was like, that's bullshit. Morph is like, <laughs> like one of the main guys. He's one of the main X-Men. <laughs> so, so without like going on like a three-hour tangent about House of M, pretty much what that storyline is, is like Scarlet Witch kind of has a mental breakdown and creates like a reality that's like she alters reality to fit like her perfect image of like how yeah. she wants it to be. And at the end, when she's restoring everything back to normal, at the very last second, she says, no more mutants. And she wipes out mutants like they lose all their powers. Like they're just normal humans after that storyline. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And, and Could you Wanda- imagine if WandaVision, I, uh, piggybacking on what you said, like if that's what actually brings mutants and the X-Men into existence in the Marvel Universe, is this one show that everyone was prepared to look over and now it's maybe arguably possibly going to be like one of the most important like cornerstones of the entire mcu so like she in the comics though she says no more mutants and then that's that like all of the characters that had mutant powers just don't anymore and that's where it goes from that's interesting yeah and uh crazy and people keep forgetting People who keep forgetting this is that Kevin Feige has gone on record saying WandaVision directly sets up the next Doctor Strange and that uh, Elizabeth Olsen is in the co-starring role of that movie. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, from everything you guys are telling me, that would make sense. I mean, that would be a good way to bring mutants in because... I mean, you can't really say that there were mutants there all along, like because that wouldn't make any sense. You know, like we would we would know um, if there had been mutants in that world. So I like the idea of them sort of spontaneously, kind of just becoming <laughs> what they're going to be. Um, but yeah, no, it's I, I'm looking forward to it. I, I liked uh, I like sort of the zany off the rails MCU that we're getting now. Uh, and I'm a lot more interested in that than I was in uh, kind of what was there before. So, yeah, that's that's good stuff. I'm enjoying One Division as well. It's wild because because I kind of hate the MCU. <laughs> um, I like you said, uh, Paul. Um, I'm 100 percent not the target audience for them. Yeah, yeah, I, I relate. <laughs> I see. I, I I'm 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 the lone person on this cast who's just like, give me more. Like, give me an MCU movie a week like I need it. Simply because, like, I – it's a very strange feeling having grown up in the 80s and 90s, like, in a small town. Like, I was – I had a graduating class of 63 people. So 
in school growing up, I was I was I was the comic book nerd and I was the horror movie nerd. Like those roles were fi- filled by me and me alone, right? So Growing up and reading comics, I always had this feeling, I'm like, why can't they do this in the movies? Why is it always these one-offs? Why can't we have a larger universe? Why can't they connect? Why can't we have serialized (laughs) storytelling only at, like, the big-budget feature film level? Why isn't that a thing? You you spoke it into existence. Well, it's... (laughs) I I have no more mutants into existence. No no, no more comic book movies. That's wiping it all out. (laughs) Nothing but comic book movies. Um, Which is kind of, you know, it's close to being true anyway. But, um, so I can't hate on the fact, you know, I... It seemed like everybody found the MCU, and tell me if you think I'm wrong about this. It seemed like everybody found that cool up until the Avengers. Like, oh, they're doing this thing, and it's kind of cool. And then it kind of exploded, and now there seems to be like, the mainstream is people are all about it. And then there is kind of like, you know, there are people who could very easily do without it. And me, I'm just... I, whether the movies are great or not, and I haven't seen, you know, maybe Thor The Dark World, maybe Iron Man 2 to a degree, but for the most part, even even the movies that aren't the greatest or aren't the best are still pretty solid. It's like Pixar to me. You know, Pixar is, you know, the the primary target is kids, but adults can watch them too. There's more depth there than, you know, uh, you know, should be expected with some of the installments. Uh, but there's like a baseline of quality that they expect out of their product as it were. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're super, super consistent. Like to the point that like, it's like, Oh, stuff that happened like way back in Iron Man two, like phase one is like still kind of having an impact all the way through Yeah, um, <laughs> to, to kind of piggyback on what you're saying is that like, Oh, everyone was kind of on board until the Avengers as someone who worked in, at AMC up until like 2019, uh, hard disagree. These are still <laughs> super popular. Like, no, everybody goes to see them. Oh, if no, somebody no, no, said, no, I mean the mainstream. Absolutely. I mean, those movies make, hundreds of millions of dollars i mean like even even detractors now like it would have been hard in those first years for anybody to completely sort of piss I, on I them you know? film, i saw film twitter people going to the theater to see endgame like i was like <laughs> yeah. oh you you act like i don't see you but i see you <laughs> yeah. well they see they kind of replaced like the independence days though like that's my i think my issue with is i miss the days of like big summer blockbusters that were just unique original big budget sci-fi yeah. i miss those movies and we don't get many of them anymore now we get like one or two a year and they're usually relegated to like a january release like and you know underwater should have been a huge i mean i know this was like covid year but underwater should have been like a huge summer blockbuster and it was never going to be that because of things like the marvel movies marvel movies are that now or dc movies or whatever it is and they're all kind of samey in my eyes i don't know i mean i think of the 22 marvel films most of them feel pretty interchangeable stylistically to me um with the few exceptions that are that that shine above the rest because of their sort of you know their their differences artistically in that way like like ragnarok ragnarok feels like it's coming from a specific director's 
voice and vision. It's got a sense of humor that's all its own. Um, it, it still fits within that universe, but it very much also feels like it's sending up that universe. Um, it it raises the stakes for the hero in the film in a lot of ways. It, the, there's more sacrifices that are made in, in that movie than there are in most of the other movies. Um, I don't know. I just think that, uh, with the exception of like the ending movies, because the ending movies sort of started having to raise the stakes because that it reached the conclusion of its story. And the, and I like those as well. Like I thought Endgame was a fun movie. Is it, is it a bit long? Sure. <laughs> and like, is it crazy and silly? Absolutely. But it knows that it made, it, it puts Ant-Man, you know, at front and center and, and because it gets that the only way this is going to work is if we treat it with a sense of fun. But I don't know. Early in the series, it kind of lost me. Iron Man 3 was where it lost me. And it and it didn't lose me because of the thing in Iron Man 3 that a lot of people got pissed off about. It lost me because I felt like the Avengers was this big event thing where aliens ripped a hole in the fabric of space and invaded New York. And then the very next movie, the only acknowledgement of it is like someone going, hey, wasn't it crazy when aliens attacked? And then they acted like... Iron Man had PTSD for like two scenes and then they acted like, Oh yeah, look at all the continuity. And I'm like, that is the shittiest continuity I've ever seen in anything. And I hate these movies now because you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't want to do this big connected universe, but then have these standalone movies, you know, the president gets kidnapped and what we're, we just assume that none of these other superheroes go to interact. Like it just, it, it, it bothers me that, and I think as the films went, they figured that out and they, st- they kind of realized, Oh, these characters have to be in each other's movies. It doesn't make sense if they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that also makes it a little bit harder to break into some of the films. So I think, I think there's just an inherent issue in that, but I am impressed that they were able to do 22 movies. And I get that again, I get they're not for me. That's why I don't sit there and criticize them more publicly. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. I, I guess ultimately, like as a comic fan, like the the point that I was making is simply that, you know, it amazed me that growing up in the 80s and 90s, I was like the nerd. I was the outcast for liking all that superhero stuff. So to me, it's kind of awesome to see in the last decade those characters not only enjoying like a, a share of the limelight, but being the mainstream. Like that's what kids love and it's cool to love that stuff now. Like Captain America is cool. Fucking Iron Man. Iron Man is cool. Yeah. Like, he that's, was, that's insane he to me, you know, and, <laughs> and, you know, a buddy of mine who, uh, who actually produces this podcast, you know, I remember I had a conversation with him once and I, I actually asked, I was like, I wonder why there's such a weird backlash against superhero movies. And his response was, well, that's all we get nowadays. That's all we get. That's yeah. all we get. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Okay, so Paul, to, to take your numbering, I think you're right, is 22, 23? Okay, we had 23 Marvel movies, which, and Marvel is, I mean, top dog, right? Okay, that's 23 movies in 12 years. That's, that's a lot. That's on average, that's two movies a year. We've had, in the last half decade, five DCEU movies, maybe? Mm-hmm. there's a whole hell of a lot of stuff still being made out there. So there I, I, I don't, but budgets, budgets, that's what it's about. It's not oh, about how many movies, it's about where the money's going. 
You're right. So, you know, all the Disney movies are, I don't know how many standalone blockbusters that Disney was producing back in the 90s and mid-aughts, but okay, so if we take them well, all... Well, Disney cool. bought Fox, right? So it, Fox but, Okay, this Fox. year. This year, but this has been a complaint for years now. You Fox was making X-Men movies, right? I mean, <laughs> that, what I'm saying is superhero stuff is just becoming the new sci-fi stuff from a studio like or, you or don't like get... yeah right sci-fi yeah exactly and I, I just think that and again this is this is like because you're pulling it out of me i'm not i don't want to <laughs> go on some tirade against superhero movies i get i agree with you it is cool that like kids who like comic books are, are, are getting indoctrinated into that stuff that's great i i have no problem with them existing i i just wish we had more mid-budget movies i didn't, <laughs> I guess I, like I, the I, 80s I was this wonderful time of mid-budget experimentations in genre and I, I, I feel like there's less of that because of the superhero craze see i disagree with that i think mid-budget movies were always going away i think it has nothing to do with superhero movies and everything to do with people shifting from uh, physical media onto streaming services and fucking red box i don't think it has Anything to do with superhero movies. I think the the writing was on the wall for mid-budget filmmaking long before Iron Man ever took flight. Can, okay. can, can I lay down a really hot take? Like, is do it. it. Go for it. Um, you know, I, I'll say this. I prefer the output of movies that DC is doing strictly because this. Because each one of them, regardless of their quality or what I think of them is true to that particular director's vision. Like, you watch Birds of Prey, you're like, that's a Kathy Ahn film. You watch Aquaman, you're like, oh, that's 100% a James Wan film. David Sandberg doing Shazam. Like, as much as I hate BBS, like, I respect that Zack Snyder sticks to his vision the whole way through. I think it's a really good take, and I kind of agree with it. I'm I'm sort of on your... I I think I'm with you. I I mean, I think I'm with you 100%. I kind of agree and disagree at the exact same time. Is that is that fair? Simply yeah. because I, I think you're 100% right in that the DC movies in letting their filmmakers have complete like reign over the story that they're telling, I think that's the best way to make a movie. I think, uh, I think Birds of Prey is great. I think I'm the rare guy who can love both Birds of Prey and Joker at the same time. And they're both completely unique to their filmmaker sensibilities. I what? But I wonder if there isn't a way to do. Well, I know there's a way to do that. You look at Marvel, Paul. You said it yourself. Like with Ragnarok, Ragnarok is not cookie cutter. Ragnarok no, is it's a, great. Yeah, Ragnarok is fucking awesome. Yeah, and it's absolutely one hundred percent a Taika Waititi film. Yes, that also works perfectly within the larger MCU. Agreed. So I think what DC is missing. When DC flies high because it lets it fil- its filmmakers do their own thing, I think it's awesome. But I think what DC is missing is that Kevin Feige type, that one guy looking over saying like, hey, you know, if we did this and this and this, like, can we keep an idea for the larger picture in mind, you know? And sometimes yeah. sometimes that can that can hurt, certainly. But sometimes when it works, when both work, when the filmmaker can make the movie that they want to make, but also maybe compromise in very slight ways to make sure that the glue works with the entire universe that 
more than just one people, more than just one person rather, is trying to build, then I think wonderful things can happen. James Gunn's Guardians movies, you know, for example. Um, I don't think DC has that yet. I think they're trying their best for it, but I don't think they're quite yet. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Like James Gunn's Suicide Squad, they're going to get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? That Very excited amazing. about that, and by the way. Same here. So it looks amazing. Um, yeah, and and again, I'm not naive, and I may have spoken a little bit too absolutely. Like when you were saying that the writing was on the wall for mid budget movies, I agree with that. I I don't think that like so maybe my words were incorrect. I I don't think that like Marvel movies killed those movies. I don't think that. I think all I was saying was that as a, I don't know, as someone who doesn't love those movies, I wish I saw more variety of things, I guess is what I was saying. So that's not really an argument against the industry or anything. It's just more of a personalized, like, I just want some other things. Does that make sense? I I just want some, like, variety in my gigantic tentpole movies. Because gigantic tentpole movies are not, there aren't that many of them every year. There's a couple. And, like... Nobody saw, want... huh? Nobody saw Mortal Engines. Huh? Nobody saw Mortal Engines. True. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, and, and it's sad that when those when other and that's the other thing is when those movies do come out that aren't Marvel movies, like no one goes and sees them. And that's kind of sad too. But like like Love and Monsters was this year, and that was like a huge not huge, but a pretty big mid budget, cool sci-fi sort of horror comedy thing that I thought was just one of the best damn movies I've seen in years. I love that movie. I've watched it four times already. Oh, wow. Um, and like more movies like that, you know, <laughs> fair enough. Brian Duffield. He had an amazing 2020. Oh he's, my God. He's my personal hero at this point. He made two <laughs> of my absolute, honestly, two of my favorite movies ever came out last year in love and monsters and spontaneous like like two of my absolute all-time favorite films and, and the fact he did like underwater and i like, know and i love underwater babysitter like sequel on top of that mm-hmm. that's wild wow oh yeah we've yeah, been talking for like an hour about mcu i love it hammer pub you never know what's gonna happen <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i brought up the the no the I, that's, that's what this is all about paul having I, said that you're up next what have you been watching recently well, Jinx, um, I've been watching Tony Scott. <laughs> I, you know, I follow you on Twitter, and I can see that you, you, if Tony, are are you watching Tony Scott stuff more than once? Because it feels like you've gone through his filmography about. No, I Twitter. literally am just hopping around his filmography. And originally, I was going to do like you know eight movies, and now I'm close enough to, to where I think I'm just going to do the whole damn thing. Do the whole thing. Um, I think I'm going to do it because I'm so close. I'm like four movies away at this point from his uh, theatrical filmography. Um, but this year was, or this year, this week was a uh, spy game, man on fire, domino days of thunder. Um, I don't remember if I talked about deja vu already, but uh, what I'll say is this, the man can direct the f- fuck out of a movie. Um, he's just such he he knows how to make a Hollywood blockbuster that's very entertaining, but that has like a human core that that's incredibly relatable and that feels pretty raw. And I think that's what differentiates his movies from a lot of other movies that would otherwise be soulless. Um, a good example of that is a movie I had never watched because I assumed I would hate it. 
called Days of Thunder about NASCAR. I despise NASCAR. I have no interest in NASCAR. <laughs> I do not want to watch cars racing. And I don't give a shit about some guy who thinks that's cool and wants to win a race. One of the reasons that you guys mentioned Pixar earlier, almost every time Pixar comes out with a movie, it makes me cry my eyes out and it ends up being like my favorite movie of the year. This year, they did that twice. <laughs> uh, but the Cars movies are movies I just can't stand uh, because I don't care about NASCAR. And so I finally watched Days of Thunder because I guess I felt like I had to. You know, I'm watching all the Tony Scott movies and I was just blown away by how much I enjoyed this movie about a bunch of things I hate, you know? Um, it, it, I'm not saying that I loved the NASCAR stuff, but he humanized it. He populated it with characters that felt real. He gave them real issues, real problems to overcome. And he didn't, and this is the real key thing, even though for outside looking in, it looks like race car porn. He did not glorify the racing. It's not glorified at all. If anything, it's shown to be sort of a hollow exploit that is more of an extension of these people who are clinging so desperately to this vague sense of uh, over-the-top masculinity, and they're so desperate to lose that, um, that they're willing to risk their lives just to feel something. Um, so, and I feel like Top Gun does something really similar where, you know, outside looking in, it kind of looks like, oh, this is just for people to kind of wax on and on about how great the military is or the air force is. And that's not what that is at all. Um, I, I was, I was just blown away with, with how enjoyable days of thunder was. And that's not even top tier Tony Scott in my eyes, but it was still a great movie. The other, the other takeaway I have is that the bulk of his films were, were grossly under, uh, underappreciated by the critical community. Yeah. Um, I have to say man on fire. What the fuck man on fire, which is maybe the man's best movie, right? Yes. Maybe, maybe, maybe this director who is one of the great directors. I don't care who you are. Like he is one of the great directors. That movie, out of 169 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which I get it. I know Rotten Tomatoes isn't the end-all be-all. But out of 169 reviews, it has a 38%. I, to me, that's enough for me to never look at Rotten Tomatoes again. That is fuck, ridiculous. Fuck every last one of those. That is ball. ridiculous. Man on Fire is a, a masterpiece. It is yes. a masterpiece. There's no other way around it. It is one of... Denzel's best performances. It is all of the things that Tony Scott is best at in terms of his visual dynamics. Um, it's it's incredibly kinetic. Um, it's it's deeply felt. It's a character study above all else. The violence and the drama is rooted from sort of the existential crisis that our protagonist is going through. Um, it could be seen as an allegory as much as it can a, a straightforward narrative, which again is very present in his films. Domino is also really underappreciated. That's a very, I think a very strong, I, no, it, it is, it is, it is, it is. I, I, I'm, I'm, I want, <laughs> here's the thing. I want, I don't think it's more. as good as man on fire, Okay, but it's a, it's a solid take. Here's how I look at it. It's, it's his spin on the biopic 
he's like, what if we made a, a biopic with an unreliable narrator into one of these crazy over the top action movies? So I don't think it's supposed to make a lot of sense. I don't think it's supposed to all tie together or stitch together. I think it's supposed to be a vignette based sort of look into the life of somebody who is living a crazy existence and the explosive manner in which that sort of culminated in a path for herself that she didn't even know she was going down. Um, so I, I feel the movie is good, actually very good. I wouldn't call it a great movie, but to say that it's bad or it didn't work or that his style wasn't in service of the story, I just completely disagree with that. I, yeah, I, no, I think that's the thing. I, when Elric Kane was on the show before we talked about Suspiri, he, there was one phrase that he used that stuck with me when he said, you know, this isn't a movie where it's, it's style over substance. Like the style is the substance. And I feel like that could easily apply to Domino. I just, it, I always felt at arm's length watching that movie. I've watched it a couple of times. I've given it a couple of revisits. Every one I want to win me over Hmm. and it never has. And I don't, I will admit, I don't have like, that's not a movie I feel emotional about. Like there's no emotional connection. Whereas a lot of his other films do a really good job of making me feel connected. But I guess, I don't know. And maybe it's because I'm immersing myself in his work. I can still just appreciate what the movie is and what it's doing. Like it's, I guess I just, I found it to be an entertaining movie more than anything else. Like, I, I just, I guess when I watched Men on Fire, when he had that, and we talked about this before in this podcast, he had that little slate of movies where he was pushing, you know, his, his visual style about as far as you could, you know. Yeah, with the, Men uh, on Fire especially. Uh, the ramping up and down, you know, the, uh, the, the, the the different types of film stocks, the uh, the stylized subtitles on screen, you know, stuff like that. You know, Man on Fire, I think, nails it. And my God, do you feel something at the end of that movie? You feel something the entire way through. That is a deeply emotional movie. Yeah. Even something as simple as an eight-minute BMW short where James Brown hires Clive Owen to race his his BMW against the devil, played by Gary Oldman. Even something <laughs> like that. Even <laughs> so, Oh, my God. That, and that short is fucking amazing. But even something like that. In and out in eight minutes or so. Right. And it's emotional. You feel something. Like there is yeah. a shot near the end of it that is just pure joy. And then you get the domino, and it's just kind of like it's a series of really pretty events that happen and then credits. You know, I can't I I can't latch on to anything in that movie other than I, I don't know. I just I I, I, I wish I knew. I I don't know. I guess I don't think that every movie needs. I, I mean, Man on Fire is an incredibly incredible emotional journey, right? Not every movie is going to be that, and I don't think Domino's ever trying to be that. I think Domino's just trying to be an interesting, entertaining action film that's occupying the space of a biopic. Um, and I'm not a huge biopic person in general. Um, and again, I don't think I, I'm not saying that that. Domino's one of his best movies, but I I don't think it deserves like a like a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever it is. Like I'm sorry, I, I did think you say fifty percent, fifty percent. Are you telling me that people like Domino critics like Domino oh, more than they yeah, like Man I'm on Fire? I'm almost positive Domino's got a higher score than Man on Fire. Almost I, positive. I quit. I'd have to double check, but um, I oh wait, everything. no, I'm wrong. 
I'm wrong. I'm wrong. But but Deja Vu does. <laughs> Deja Vu's got a higher score. Domino's 18. I was wrong. Domino's 18, which is crazy low for that movie, too. That's Anyway. Um, but Deja Vu is 56. Uh, Man on Fire is 38. Bob. And I like Deja Vu. Uh, I think Deja Vu is a very fun movie. I would put Deja Vu on a very similar scale as Domino. Um, I don't think Tony Scott made a bad movie from everything I've seen. I haven't seen them all yet. Uh, but I think that people, you know, it's easy to kind of shit on his movies because they play they play it big. They're very much big budget Hollywood fairs. Um, and they often are very heavily stylized. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think he uses his style well. I think he, his craft is always present on screen. Um, and I think it makes for an entertaining ride most of the time. So anyway, it's been really fun going through his films. I'm going to finish it up this week and, uh, then I'll move on to some other director. Fair enough. Raina, do you have any thoughts about, uh, Tony Scott? Yeah, he did The Hunger, so I forever yeah. love Tony Scott. <laughs> yes, and I I feel horrible because last week when we were talking, I said uh, of the what I meant to say was of the movies I've watched, the only thing he's made that's even close to horror was uh, the fan. And then our guest was like, uh, he made the hunger and that's a hundred percent horror. And I was like, <laughs> it made it sound like I didn't know he made the hunger. And when I was, cause I listened back to it and I was like, Oh God, no, I know he made the hunger. I just went ahead and watched it that week. <laughs> I adore the hunger. The hunger is amazing. Anyway, just had to throw that in as like a correction. So listeners don't think I'm a terrible human. I know. I was like listening. I'm like, wow, Paul's not mentioning the hunger. <laughs> I'm like that's a little odd. Yeah, I as I said, I when I was listening back, I was like, I did not qualify what I meant by what I was saying. Yeah, I, I just I haven't revisited The Hunger yet, um, mainly because it, I've seen it so much. You know, out of all of Tony Scott's films, it's the one I've watched the most. So I was kind of like watching the other ones, but I am going to revisit it this week just because to complete the uh, filmography. I love The Hunger, but yeah, go on. Sorry. Oh. Oh no! My favorite Tony Scott movies are The Hunger and and Domino. <laughs> nice. I'll give, I love I'll give it. Domino another Finally, shot see, it's Domino. been about a decade it. since I revisited it. So, but that's because I'm insanely attracted to Keira Knightley. So, like, well, and it's like and one of the few movies that isn't a period piece from her. <laughs> and it's a it's a great performance from her. Like, and it's cool to see her in a movie like that because it feels really against sort of type what what we've seen her in before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. So, uh, so uh, I finally got to see some Chronic. What the uh, so... the new Benson and Moorhead film, a movie that was just released to Blu-ray, but damn near everybody on film Twitter has apparently already seen. Oof. Um, <laughs> Marvel. Do what? Speaking of Marvel, the fact that they're like doing an MCU project. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. I can't wait. They're doing Moon Knight, which is that's that's a that's a, that's a pairing right there. You know, I I have faith in them. Uh, you know what? Because... I, I'll tell you what, if they somehow make it in canon with their other four films, I'll yeah. be so excited. Oh, you know, for all their movies. <laughs> Resolution is MCU. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I, they're going to do that. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm sure they will because they, they just can't not do that. But my God, that would be so great. Every 
time Benson and Moorhead make a movie, I celebrate. Like, I just, Resolution, Spring, The Endless, no one is making movies like them. You know, they're, they're oh, just, no. yeah. they're original, unique, um, wondrous, terrifying, uh, always, always full of heart. And I, I think Synchronic is no exception. Um, for listeners out there who haven't seen it, uh, I won't provide spoilers, but I will say that uh, Synchronic concerns two paramedics who discover a slate of recent drug-related deaths they've run across have uh, have been caused by Synchronic, which is a designer drug which allows its users to uh, to time travel. And uh, that's that's all I'm going to say about the plot. I will say that there is an event in the film that drives its second half. Uh, I'm not going to reveal what that is, but I'll just say that I really appreciated the fact that the trailer didn't give it away. It seems like uh, seems like it would have been so simple to spoil or kind of use that plot point to market the movie in a more direct way than they did. Um, but it was just, it was a really nice surprise to see that story unfold, knowing nothing about it going in. And, uh, it's just overall, it's a great film. I think it does something really new and cool with time travel, as well as having fun with some of that subgenre's tropes. Uh, I think the performances are great. I think the ending is genuinely affecting, uh, you know, as is true of all the previous efforts. And, uh, you know, it's an ending that, like, kind of all of their previous efforts with maybe the exception of the endless, it kind of leaves viewers on a question. You know, you can, you can kind of complete the story on your own, you know, emotionally the film is complete, but story wise, there's just a bit more left over for you to chat about once the credits are running. And I love that about this movie. I love the movie overall. I love their filmography. I've said this before on Twitter. I wish they would make a movie every week. (laughs) <laughs> well, you're going to get a TV show from them every week next Love week. it. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, that's a bold choice on, like, sorry to pivot back to Marvel. That's a bold choice on their end to pick them. <laughs> I love it. I, I, have you it's stuff it? like that that inspires me to watch that, though. Like, I, I think, like, because they're doing it, it's going to probably bring in peripheral audiences, you know? like people that might not have checked it out. Um, plus it ensures like a creative spark that won't go away. You know, I think if they keep, I, that is something that heartens me about what Marvel's doing is bringing in sort of in, indie directors that have proven themselves um, and letting them have a shot at something bigger. Um, I, I find that really exciting. So yeah, I mean, I'm 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 looking forward to checking that show out, and I, I agree, Jinx. Synchronic is uh, is fantastic. I haven't seen it yet. I need to really watch it. Reina, it is it is fantastic. I, I really loved is. loved the endless. Like I was champion that movie. Oh, like, the endless is so good. Yeah, I mean um, that's the. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Sorry, I was ending my thought. <laughs> no, you're fine. Yeah, I. I totally agree the endless blew me away um resolution and endless as a one-two punch is just such a satisfying watch <laughs> um and synchronic definitely carries the torch forward into new territory um i think the endless remains my favorite film of theirs um but everything they've made is great and uh synchronic is is no exception so i'm happy it's out in the world now because it was it was frustrating I saw it a while ago because it was at um, 
2019 Fantastic Fest. Um, and it was frustrating that like it, I, we couldn't, nobody could see it. You know, it's like, you see this movie, you know, it exists, you know, it's ready. And then just nothing for like a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's the saddest thing in the world, you know, cause there's buzz that gets risen up by that. Like Jinx was saying like, Oh, you see that buzz online and then it comes out. And I, I just feel like it's sad that that buzz is sort of dissipated um, well, and that you have to sort of re-champion it. I think I think the Marvel announcement has people kind of having a look at it. That is true. Yeah, it's, and that's exciting too. Is that them going to Marvel will hopefully bring you know a, a lot more eyes to the work they've already done, which is well deserved. Oh my, that cast that they get to work with on Moon Knight is is, is crazy. That's a good cast they get to work with. That's awesome. <laughs> Just uh, Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke and. That's, that's gonna be great. That's gonna be like Ragnarok levels different. I'm fully convinced that Moon Knight is. It's gonna be like even more like WandaVision, where it's just like branching off and doing like its own thing. Yeah, I don't even know what Moon Knight is, but I'm excited to see something <laughs> they've made. <laughs> he's just got. He's. I think all you really need to know is he's a millionaire that's got multiple personalities. Okay. All right. I'm super into that. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Yeah. He's he's great. He fights Dracula at one point. What? Okay. <laughs> I love the you, meme. You even just they... sold me on the Moon Knight. Fight yeah. The doctored, uh, the doctored word balloon on the uh, him stalking into the crypt is the greatest, one of the greatest memes I think ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, Raina, uh, what, uh, what else have you seen this week? Oh, God. Um... I watched randomly The Mummy 1999. Good choice. Um, I watched it because I'm excited for Jungle Cruise. I know I'm over here saying like, uh, Disney blah, but like that was a movie when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, that looks like the Brendan Fraser Mummy. Like it just looks like a super fun, like, oh yeah, action adventure. Um, so I decided to rewatch that and, and I haven't rewatched it in so long and, I legit was just like kind of sitting there and just shot out a tweet. I was like, man, they don't make them like they used to. Um, <laughs> we're saying all like these big budgeted, like kind of not connected to anything else. I guess at the time you could say it was like them trying to reboot the Universal Monsterverse, but for the most it, part, it would have been uh, great to see Brandon Fraser fight all the monsters. I, oh, I do think yeah. that would have been a cool series. Didn't didn't the same director of the Mummy nineteen ninety nine uh, do Van Helsing as well with Hugh Jackman? He did, he did. Mm-hmm. And why there wasn't a crossover? Like I, I mean, that just it's right there, you know. Like why not? You know, it's just I don't know. It, <laughs> I like... Universal cannot get their classic monster reboots right for the life of them. <laughs> it, it blows my mind. Until this last year with the Invisible Man. It is, but it's like, but at the same time, it's like, you know, they're, I, I think they've just sort of resigned themselves to being like, uh, you know what, fuck it, we're just going to do what we did before, you know, 80 years ago, we're just going to have individual movies and that's it, which is fine if mm-hmm. the movies wind up as good as The Invisible Man, like Karin Kasama doing Dracula, like, holy oh, shit, that's going to be amazing, yeah. you know, but at the same time, you know, like we were talking about the DCEU, it's like, can we work a little bit harder and can we have both? I think, uh, I think I can, 
I can't imagine Lee Winnell's Wolfman not being connected in the same universe to uh, the Invisible Man. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And here's the thing: like, I don't even need, and we shouldn't even have necessarily like an Avengers style you know, movie where all the creatures get together and they got to fight a uh, uh, bigger jaws. Awesome, you know, like <laughs> I don't, I don't need that. Yeah. But why not? You know, going back to universal's history, we did have Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. So why not do stuff like that? It's okay to say, Hey, all of this stuff exists in the same universe. We don't have to mash them together. We don't need our big Avengers movie. There, there doesn't need to be phases that culminate in big punch em ups, but it's also okay for them to run into one another. You know, it's also okay to create narratives where we can drag in other monsters, you know? Yeah. Like, and then, like I said, once again, with Lee Winnell also doing the Wolfman and Blumhouse also doing that, particular adaptation too i'm just like there's no way those two aren't in the same universe especially given like the pedigree that comes with like adapting universal monsters yeah i don't i don't see it not happening and i i kind of have faith in winnell and uh and jason blum to kind of keep that tradition alive a little bit yeah Yeah. i think they've earned it an invisible man was a very very good movie, a very good sort of studio horror film, you know, that, that kind of checks all those boxes really sleek, but also incredibly well made with a fantastic performance at its center. So I think if they can replicate that sort of success in other monster movies, I'm I'm really excited about what that might be. Paula, uh, after we do your next choice, I can I can talk a little more about uh about Universal and Universal Monsters and uh, reboots and whatnot. Well, uh, talk about one of my other rewatches this week, sir. Uh, you could just go ahead because I we we've been at right. this for a minute. We should Are probably. You sure? Are you sure, get Paul? Close to. Sure, you uh, want me to go ahead to and dive? This is a commentary for the Gorgon. I think we've. I think we might have actually been doing a feature length. We, we you could play this over the Gorgon this this entry, and I think we would actually reach the end of the film. <laughs> We're in an hour now, but I'm happy. Okay, I'll make this my last one. Paul, I upgraded from my Blu-ray mm-hmm. to a 4K mm-hmm. of Dracula Untold this week. Paul, oh, really Paul, good movie. I really enjoyed it. Paul, if you had the guess. <laughs> If you had yeah. to guess, Paul. Yes. Paul, why this week would I have upgraded to a 4K of Dracula Untold? Just guessing. Because uh, um, there was an episode of Cobwebs, uh, Daniel Ep- Epler's fantastic podcast, uh, where he discussed that movie with a guest. Oh, was there? There was a guest. Yeah, uh, uh, I I was asked on. Um, and apparently, according to you, I did a really shitty job. So I never, uh, you know, I enjoyed Dracula Untold. I thought it was a good movie. <laughs> I actually, hey, I never said that. I actually had kidding. a wonderful time listening to that episode as you all <laughs> discussed the Frank Langella Dracula. Yeah. And then you all started talking about Dracula Untold. We did. 
Okay, a movie so, we both enjoyed. <laughs> so at this point, I would actually encourage Scream Addicts listeners to pause this episode and go seek out Daniel Epler's Cobwebs podcast. One, because it's a great podcast and you should be listening to it already. But two, because the last episode featured uh, Hammer Pub's own Paul Farrell talking to Daniel about the 1970, Paul, am I getting this right? 1979 Dracula with Frank Langella? Yeah. 1979's yes. Dracula okay. with Frank Langella. And it's kind of contrasted with their discussion of Dracula Untold. Now, you might remember from a few episodes back when we had Daniel Epler on, I was like, hey, you guys are going to be talking about Dracula Untold? Golly, I wish I was a part of that conversation because I really like that movie. Daniel, I never said it was brilliant. Never said that. Never said it. Uh, I I did listen to the Cobwebs episode. It was strange being referenced so many times in that episode and not being able to respond. (laughs) Gotta say that was weird. There is a moment where I was like, boy, Paul is going to hear about this. (laughs) And then on the episode, Paul actually said, oh, I'm going to hear about this. It because I knew you would take all the wrong things away from what I was saying. You know what? I, I gotta say, I picked it up on 4K. I watched it again. Damn it. The movie still holds up for me. I, I still love that. You know, we're talking about superhero movies. I don't agree. Here's what might surprise you. I don't agree with Universal's initial attempt at creating, quote unquote, a dark universe by taking all of these classic monsters and trying to turn them into superheroes. I think that's a dodgy as fuck idea. And I don't think it works in theory because not all of them can be made into superheroes. I I, uh, look no further than Van Helsing. I think Van Helsing is a fun movie. I think Van Helsing is also a case study in why you can't turn some of those characters into big superheroes. But Looking at what Gary Shore, the director, did with Dracula Untold, I think he took that idea of blending horror and superheroes, like those two genres. I think he did it possibly as good as you could do it. You know, the movie's not scary, but neither still are the movies it's riffing on. You know, that that isn't really its aim. You know, too, I, I will say this. Listening to the episode, and I, I for all the, the, the ragging on you guys I'm doing, like, I, I did really love that episode. I think you guys had a great chat. But two criticisms I heard that I really wanted to respond to, like, I and I don't know who mentioned it first, but <laughs> I, I guess, number one, I get why the ticking clock structure of the movie seems like a strange choice. You know, why, why should we be concerned about Dracula? Oh, yeah, okay, clock? yeah. When we know, you know, we know he's going to become Dracula. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To me, watching the movie, even its first time, it's not about like, it's not about tricking the audience so much as kind of both giving our hero a drive, but also planting that question with, you know, we, the viewers, not whether or not he'll become a vampire by the end of his journey, but whether he'll lose himself and his soul in the process. And I think the surprise of the movie, and Paul, I think you noted this yourself in that podcast, is that he doesn't. Like, he doesn't become a monster. You know, he's kind of a hero by the end of it. He's a monstrous hero, but he's a hero. And I, and I think, so. so yes, right? Like, 
I agree. Like he, they sort of, to me, again, it's a, it's a case where it feels like the movie wants its cake and it wants to eat it too, because he, they want him to be the Dracula monster for certain things. Like when he kind of loses it and goes, uh, uh, ape shit on the army, which again, they're the bad guys. Like we want to see him do that. We're rooting for Dracula, which is okay. I mean, I get it. I get what the movie's trying to do. It wants to make him a superhero, but it also wants him to be Dracula. It wants him to be this formidable, monstrous thing. Um, and and I feel that what they're suggesting, well, what the movie suggests in the first act when you first go into that cave is sort of like this is a potential future for our hero, right? Yeah. Like this this thing in the cave could be like a, a metaphor for what he becomes. And I guess maybe that's more, I was more interested in that. Um, and then for that to amount to like a, a fancy looking dude in a suit drinking tea <laughs> outside later on, like as the Nick Fury of the fr- I don't know. I just, I didn't See, like that, where, that, what it all okay. amounted to. Like it, I, it just I, felt like they squandered a lot of really cool ideas because they wanted to be a superhero. Okay, so I guess I had three issues with the criticisms I had met because you just mentioned that. I'm sorry, but Charles dances Master Vampire at the end. Of course he just looks like a dude on the streets of London. He's not just going to be strolling around looking like a bat creature sipping his Starbucks, creeping on Dracula in the present day. I know, I know. I know he'd have like a human form. I just don't know that that was where the movie should leave us. I, 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 I mean, I get why. And and that wasn't intended to be the ending, too. So that, I feel like, gives a little bit more weight to what I feel. Because even the director didn't want that there. No, it was you so- know what? That ending, like, somebody... The ending is almost like a Marvel mid-credit sequence that they just decided to add to the the. Yeah, the exactly. But Which I don't like a- those. <laughs> Movies should I- end when they end. <laughs> But like, what I love about that is the bullshit. idea that, okay, the narrative already ended, and here we have this extra little tag. It's a tease for what we might get next. What I love about that final two minutes is the fact that, look, we've seen the Dracula story how many fucking times already? We know how it goes. What's great about that final two minutes is that now we have a tease of seeing the same story that we've seen countless times before, but viewed through an entirely different lens where Dracula is not necessarily a monster. He's not a villain necessarily. We're setting up the Dracula Mina story. That's thing one. Thing two is the presence of the master vampire. So we get this cool little tease as to what's going to come next, but with two elements that completely could potentially upset a story that we know by heart. Yeah. I thought that was kind of fascinating. It was, I, I, I liked the movie. I thought it was fun. I, I mean, the, okay. the thing <laughs> is like the, the whole point of the conversation was to scrutinize it a bit and, and pick it apart in a way that compares it to other Dracula movies. And, and so for me, like if I'm just watching it as popcorn entertainment, like absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. It was fun. I, I would say that movie is like a solid three, three and a half stars out of five for me. I did not not like it. Um, but if I'm going to go like, why do I like the the classic Dracula? Why do I like horror of Dracula or the oh, 1979 yeah. Dracula more? Well, it's because those little things I find to be a little annoying and a little disingenuous to 
what the character is. I get that you need to change it if you're going to make what they were trying to make. So I'm I'm not saying they shouldn't have done it or that I hated it. In fact, I would have liked to see a sequel to it. I think a sequel would have been really interesting and might have made me like that stuff more. I think part of the reason it annoys me so much is that there isn't a sequel, so it just feels like an addendum that hurts the overall you know, yeah. score. Yeah, they, they definitely got boned. If you read a little bit about the history of the Dark Universe and how that affected Dracula Untold and why there were reshoots and then how it was ultimately... You know, I, I the guy made his movie for Universal and then Universal decided they wanted to make the Dark Universe movies. And so they were like, okay, we want to go ahead and tie this Dracula into the Dark Universe. So you need to reshoot this and this and this and set this up. And he did it about as well and as seamlessly, I think, as a filmmaker could... And then by the time Alex Kurtzman's mummy comes out, they decide, you know what? Nah, we're not really going to do anything with that. And we're just going to do our own Dracula down the line. So not only did they affect this guy's movie, you know, but they effectively killed his franchise. And there was going to be a larger story told there. It pisses me off. And you know what? I, uh, karma being what it is, the fucking mummy got trashed and it completely killed the dark universe in one fell swoop. So not for nothing. I, I, I think karmically <laughs> that was appropriate. I will say one last thing on Dracula Untold and then we can move on. Um, the, the other, the second criticism, uh, I guess the midpoint criticism that I took exception to in that conversation was simply the fact that the idea that Morena, his wife would never damn Dracula by insisting he drink her blood. Well, of course oh, yeah, I did like she that. wouldn't. Of course she wouldn't, unless it meant saving her child, which it did. Would a mother do that to save her child? Of course she would. Damn I, I think him that... forever? Yes. I don't know. I don't know. I you mean, sure. A, I you, get, don't, you I, don't think a mother would do that for I a guess, child? I guess I do. I just didn't like it. I don't know. Does well, that make I don't sense? Think we're Can to... I just not like something? I I, I just didn't <laughs> like it. I, I I mean I didn't like the choice. I I I it, it I didn't feel it was earned. <laughs> See, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Like it, it, the drama, yeah. the drama was all about putting these characters in <clears throat> the worst possible situations and giving them an impossible choice. Right. I wish he would have just chosen to do that with her giving him a meaningful stare sort of thing like rather than her telling him to do it i don't know i think it's one of those things where don't you think i feel she like she's the type of character who would want death? him to do it but at the same time like or or maybe i don't know i it's so easy to to backseat write a movie so i don't want to do that <laughs> i don't want to sit here and go like this is exactly what should have happened i'm a better writer you know because i'm not i'm not a better writer like the, the movie is and again I feel weird because I feel like I'm attacking a movie I enjoy. I genuinely enjoyed. I liked the movie. I do not have a problem with the movie. I think it's good. We just got really nitpicky because that's kind of what you do when you're talking about a movie at length. You know, like you you either. But I knew that we were veering. It, our conversation. Here's what I'll say about the whole conversation. Look, I get what you're saying. I think we sort of accidentally veered towards sounding negative about a movie we both liked. Because it's easier to pick apart a blockbuster movie. It's just easier to point out the things you don't like than the things you do like. Because the things you like are obvious. Like, oh, it's really entertaining. It's it's exciting. You know, there's there's some cool effect sequences and this, that, and the other. Um, but it's easier to sort of hone in on those things that don't totally work for you story-wise. Um, and in a Dracula movie, I guess... 
for a movie where they wanted you to feel incredibly sympathetic for Dracula, which it, you do, and, and it worked well. Um, doing that opens up doors towards having issues with how they're doing that. And it, and it makes you a little more nitpicky around some of the other side characters. At the end of the day, do I understand that a mother would sacrifice anything for her kids? Absolutely. I have kids. I get that. Sure. Yes. I understand in real life that's something people would do. In a movie, I'm going to be a lot more uh, maybe nitpicky about motivations and <clears throat> what the movie's done so far and whether or not it's earned in the narrative and, and built up. And I just didn't feel like the movie did anything to make that character feel like she would make that decision there and, and damn her husband to hell. When earlier she totally understood that that means like he is screwed forever and that more than likely they're all going to die anyway. Um, I guess I wanted more out of that. But again, I wouldn't make that nitpick in a regular blockbuster. I'm only doing it because I'm comparing it to like the Frank Langella Dracula, which is like a masterpiece, you know? So it, it's, it's an unfair, probably unfair criticism. So I'll, I'll give you that. Paul, those were but a few, but not all the things I was yelling at. At my phone when I was walking around my neighborhood listening to that episode. I probably looked like a crazy person. Uh, to, uh, I take it all back. You're right. It's a perfect movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's really not. It's really not. Yeah, well, that's I mean, what I'm saying. Like, all I'm saying is it's it's got some flaws. And that's all. I liked it. Like, I, I think that I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess we're being too hard on it. Is that fair? Yes. We're just, you think we're being too hard on it? Yes. yes. Okay. We were being too hard on it. I apologize. That's all I wanted. Uh, no, Although the, the, the big uh, turning into bats is dumb. I'll say that. No, it's turning not. into bats. Was really that's dumb. not. Yes. It's dumb. It was great. I, why do you not like the turn? Okay, that's another thing I didn't understand. <laughs> that's in the lore. Why wouldn't he turn into bats just in the superhero version of that character? Maybe I just don't like the superhero stuff. They're not for me, man. They're not for and me. And he isn't really, when I say superhero, it I, just because I think that's what it is. He feels like a like a Superman character or a Batman character, like it, flying no, from one place to the next. More than anything, like he didn't learn how to do it. He just kind of how to do it. I don't know. Why? Why couldn't it be instinct? Do you did did you? It need, was. I mean, it can be because it was. <laughs> did you need? Okay, at any point in the movie, did you need the Raimi Spider Man montage where he? Oh, I would. I think I would have liked that. I where he learns how that. to climb walls. Yeah, and yeah, he's like, yeah I think so. Oh I think my that god, might have been cool. Okay, so like when he turns, oh yeah, you could have had the Master Vampire guy teach him as a creepy monster. That would have been neat. <laughs> I, I would have been down for that shit, man. I'm telling you, like. That, that as much have, as I hate certain cliches, I love a good train. Dude, I am always down for a good cliche training montage. Yeah. I am so in for training montages. Like it does, it's not even funny. It doesn't matter what the movie is. Put put some music to it and and some funny little like mess ups. You know, he tries to do something. It doesn't quite work. He's oh, got to do it a couple times. I'm, I'm in. For you that. are now describing a movie that I think I actively would have hated. <laughs> Uh, all right paul what's your next movie i think we should talk about the gorgon the gorgon okay okay i have okay i have one last movie reyna are you still awake have we bored you to sleep i understand if so i i almost dipped out entirely at that dracula and the whole conversation 
You know what? I almost did too, and that's fair. Okay, I'm going to rattle through one last review simply because I want people to see this movie, and then on to the uh, the, 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 the main uh, event will go. Did either of you happen to see The Little Things on HBO Max? No. Okay, I, I real quick, not. I'll just say... It's a fantastic little film. It, 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 it seems to be like one of those 90s style, like kind of post Silence of the Lambs serial killer thriller. It's kind of very seven, very kiss the girls, very bone collector. Uh, like those movies, it has an all star cast. It's kind of a slick studio movies movie rather. Uh, unlike those movies, this particular film, it isn't really concerned with foot chases or gunfights or big set pieces or, uh, you know, kind of like a crazy final act reveal. Um, this movie is kind of more of a character study that focuses on um, kind of the mundanity of detective work and the sort of uh, toll that grisly murders and unsolved cases can take on the people who work them um it just real quick uh it finds denzel washington playing a deputy who was once a um uh celebrated detective before a uh, specific case kind of broke him and when the movie begins he finds himself drawn into a case headed up by his replacement who was played by uh rami malik in the film and the two characters eventually kind of bring into their crosshairs a creepy suspect played by uh, Jared Leto and, you know, an unfortunate bit of casting. And that's all I'll say about the story. It's, it's, it's a quiet, creepy, and ultimately kind of a deeply sad movie. And one with an ending that's, um, it, it's somehow both icy and equally kind of oddly touching. Uh, it, it packed more of a punch than I thought it would, and I'd say it's well worth seeking out. So if you have HBO Max, it's one of those uh, premieres that they're doing this year of movies that were meant to be theatrical, but they're actually premiering on HBO Max instead. So if you have that service, definitely check it out. If you don't, I wouldn't say it's necessarily worth getting it just for that. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's a pretty damn good movie. Cool. All right. Okay, so we are – how far – okay – it's worth noting, Raina, we're so sorry. Uh, generally, this takes about 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. We're an hour and 21 minutes into our pre-show. Uh, it's literally the length of the Gorgon, I think. This is, this yeah, is utter madness. Um, I've, yeah, this is... Okay, let's just dive into the Gorgon, everyone. Um, okay, so everyone at home, whether you have uh, a streaming copy of this movie, which is going to be a trick for you, let me tell you, or if you have it on Blu-ray in that nifty new Mill Creek set, let's everyone get to the very first frame of the title sequence. Okay, and I am currently getting there myself. Just waiting for my PlayStation to load up. Oh, got it. Okay, the very first frame should read... Well, as soon as it comes up... Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in. So let's get to that point, and we're going to press play in five, four. One second. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I'm on, I'm still on the Columbia logo. <laughs> no, you're good. Everyone oh. in listener land, just hang tight. Absolutely. We're going to do this. We're going to get through this commentary. We promise you. Okay. Paul I'm... had to go and talk about Marvel movies for 40 minutes. <laughs> I'm getting Paul. I mean, it, it's all my fault. I, I, I take responsibility for all of this. No, I am, I am there now. I share in it a little. 
Okay, everyone, let's press play in five, four, three, two, one, and play. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in. Okay, can I just say what kind of bullshit it is that as much as I love Christopher Lee, and I do love me some Christopher Lee, why does he get first billing in this film? Because he's Christopher Lee. Yeah, because he's Christopher <laughs> Lee. What do you, you talk about? <clears throat> because Dude, he doesn't show up in the movie proper until like 50 minutes in. I, I do like that we're staring at uh, Frankenstein's Chateau from Evil. Or, uh, yeah. Is it Evil? Literally the last movie we just watched? Yeah. That's the same uh, Chateau there. Oh, I have a feeling we'll be revisiting a lot of sets in this one. <laughs> oh yeah, in classic hammer style. Yeah. All right, so we have all watched this movie. Um, can I ask impressions overall? What did you think? Mm, do you want me to go first? I'll go yeah, first. Yeah, <laughs> Raina, you are our guest. Uh, you you've noted you're a Hammer fan, but primarily the vampire movies. What did you think of the Gorgon? So. I am a huge uh, Greek mythology fan. So the fact that this one was kind of based around it and like kind of just based around like Medusa's sister and whatnot, I was super in on this one. Um, also, I just like, I, I love Christopher Lee and his mustache in this movie. <laughs> it's a solid mustache. Yeah. He's having the damn time <laughs> of his life in this movie. <laughs> No, and this I I do love you know. There's something very classical about these opening titles. I I you just give me a matte painting and some letters, and I'm grinning ear to ear right at the very beginning of any Hammer flick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they tended to be like I know it might be blasphemous, but I like marathon the entire like Universal Monsters box set, and overall I find the Hammer films to be a bit more stylish, but with like a lot less money. <laughs> You're not right. I agree. I agree with that. I mean, I like I like uh, a lot of the classic Universal movies, and of course, like I don't think the Hammer stuff would really be there without them. Um, but the Hammer films are just a lot more interesting visually, and and they have the benefit of uh, you know people like Terrence Fisher at the helm, mm-hmm. um, and he directs the hell out of this movie for sure. Yeah, yeah. He's probably my favorite of all the Hammer directors. I know that's probably a popular answer. Yeah, but for for good reason, I think. He earns that, I believe. You know, Hammer had a lot of great directors, but do any of them pop Fisher? I, I... Not for me, no, Paul. No, I mean, not for me. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's really interesting because this movie comes right at the tail end of several pretty high profile failures box office wise for him, mm-hmm. you know, particularly fan of the opera. Um, and so this was a movie that really needed to work. <laughs> um, and that's one of the reasons like, you know, that they brought their big guns, you know, that you've got, you've got Cushing, you've got Lee, you know, you've got Fisher back, um, you know, you've got, James Bernard writing the music. You've got Bernard Robinson doing the set design. You've got a lot of the key players. Um, and this was the A movie because this was paired with uh, the one we just talked about, um, Curse, right? Curse of the Mummy's Tomb? Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, so that was like the B feature to this. That one was uh, Michael Carreras? Mm-hmm. you say it correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah. that was his... Yeah. Uh, wasn't his first directing effort, but I think it was the first major horror film that he did, right, Paul? Yeah. Yeah, and it it definitely um for me that movie and we talked about it, but uh didn't really work altogether. No. But um this one works incredibly well and, and Fisher definitely brings his patented sort of atmospheric gothic sentiment sentimentality to it. Yeah, it's it's just absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, comparing and contrasting it to uh, Freddie Francis's work, you know, immediately preceding this on the evil of Frankenstein, I they're both filmmakers who can shoot a gorgeous movie, but there's something about the two that is markedly different. And it, to me, Fisher paints a world which is just kind of removed from our reality you know everything seems like it's on a stage everything seems like it's uh you know not 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 quite real whereas freddie francis's work always even you know going to something like uh not only evil of frankenstein but even um you know horror of frankenstein his work always seems grounded no matter how gothic he leans you know um and and i kind of appreciate the difference between the two but I gotta say, like watching Fisher's stuff, like this, this is what I think of when I think Hammer Horror. Mm-hmm. I would agree, um, and I, and it is you're right. It is interesting to to watch it back to back with uh, a Freddie Francis movie, and I think I think there's something about Fisher's work that's more measured and more patient um, in terms of you know bringing about because none of these movies, and we've talked about this before, these movies aren't really like scary per se no um but they do you know very build dread in really expert fashion um and create created an atmosphere of uncertainty and this movie does that incredibly well um, paul can i just say real quick barbara yeah. shelley oh on yeah screen here not only is she wonderful just you know doffing the hat to her she for all of her great work uh it's worth noting that we just recently lost her. Uh, she passed away on January 3rd of this year. That's a, a tremendous loss. Um, and, and she's, she's great in a lot of horror movies. <laughs> you know, she was the, the queen of hammer. Some would say. She's actually, uh, in my favorite hammer film, who's, also directed by Terrence Fisher, and I know Jinx, you're gonna hard disagree with me on this one. Is actually a Dracula, Prince of Darkness. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting. That was like loaded in the chamber the entire episode. Like, yes, this is this is the conversation that I want to hear after my Dracula Untold argument. I want to hear about Prince of Darkness. No, you know what? I have not seen Dracula Prince of Darkness since my last revisit, which is when that, I want to say it was Synapse. They released a Blu-ray way back in the day, a limited print run, but I picked it up. I reviewed it for Dread Central. Didn't like it then, but you know what? I'm currently in possession of Blu-rays, upgraded Blu-rays of all of the Hammer Dracula films. I'm going to rewatch them all from the very beginning, and I hope, I genuinely hope, 
that I find something in Prince of Darkness this time around that uh, that I love. So we'll see. See, you you brought up the Terrence Fisher like how he does like the slow burn, almost like methodical like like horror. And Prince of Darkness is just an absolute exercise in that. Yeah. Like, like I mean, uh, Christopher Lee doesn't say a word the entire movie. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, and I... I, I that, oh, oh, go sorry. ahead. No, go ahead. What's that? Oh, sorry. Uh, no, I, I, uh, I, I like Prince of Darkness. I haven't seen it in a while. Um but I agree, actually. I, I think Prince of Darkness is a solid movie. I'm I'm excited to revisit it. And uh but I do remember, I mean, I like that Lee doesn't talk. I I feel like what's cool about that movie is, you know, since Dracula is actually being resurrected for the first time in that film, because Bride's obviously just excised the character entirely, I feel like he, he feels a like a different character. Like almost like because he's been killed and brought back to life, now he's a little bit more animalistic. He's a little less human um, than he's able to appear in Horror of Dracula. Um, and I thought that sort of continuity there was really interesting and made him feel more like a a very frightening presence in the film that that kind of surprised me. It's I would equate it to when Jason Voorhees gets brought back from the dead in Part Six. Sure. Yeah. It's like, totally different character almost yeah yeah you're right yeah it's interesting <laughs> and and barbara shelley's right. fantastic in it that scene where she gets staked like chef's kid <laughs> yeah no, she's awesome she's also really good in village of the damned i know that's not a hammer movie but she's really good in it uh can i just say that inspector is a kenoff here or kenoff um it's patrick troughton so I uh, just uh, want to throw a shout out to the uh, second ever Doctor Who there because I'm a huge Doctor nerd. So is this in canon with Doctor Who? Is this mm. like one of his misadventures where he pretends to be something, somebody or something? No, it is not. <laughs> okay, just check no, it. No, it is not. <laughs> Although that would be cool. But British no. needs to be connected. <laughs> You know, it's funny. This actually would have been I, uh, I never know. this year. The Gorgon would have been, uh, if I'm getting this right, this would have been the same year as or just the year after Doctor Who premiered. So this was only a couple of years out from him taking that role. Oh, wow. Is this the first time Cushing and Lee were in a movie since, uh, like, I guess, what, The Mummy? Uh, yeah. So it had, it had been yeah. a few years since they had <laughs> appeared together. At what about point. three years? Three or four? Yeah. Yeah, I think I read on IMDb that it was like their first in like four years together. That sounds right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they hadn't, you know, been together given how many Hammer films they were pumping well, they, out. They arguably still really aren't in this film. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Sort of at the end, they get some moments. It was it's interesting to see Cushing play a more dastardly character too. I mean, I guess Frankenstein, but I don't know. I feel like since Frankenstein's sort of the anti-hero of those movies, and in this one, he's he's more of a definitive villain. Do you find him though? You know, revisiting this movie, it kind of blew me away that, uh, and I think it was a surprise that he wound up being a villain at all. 
you know, he, it seems to me like the movie is setting him up to be the hero. Like, hey, agreed. Look, yeah, this first, is Peter yes. Cushing. You know what yeah. he does? Like, this is uh, this is your guy. And then yeah. the further you go along, you realize, like, oh, well, maybe it's not cut and dry. Maybe he's not the hero with capital H. Maybe he's a little more of an anti-hero, or maybe he's a hero with some flaws. But it, you know, I'm sure when we get to the end of the movie, you know, he he's going to be our guy, and he's really not the guy by the end of it. I thought that was kind of fascinating, that switch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was just going <laughs> to say, uh, especially given that, like, usually Lee was, like, known for playing, like, those, like, villainous roles for the most part. Yeah, yeah. that's such a good point. Yeah, because when I first saw Lee, I was like, okay, he's probably bad. Cushing's probably good. And it, and the, I don't know if I told you this, Jinx, but this was a first time watch for me. I had really? never seen this movie. Yeah, this was so I was really excited because you know, as as we've all talked about, Terrence Fisher is also my favorite Hammer director, of course. And um, so to see a new Terrence Fisher movie, or what was new to me, with Cushing and Lee was a really exciting prospect. Um, not to mention, I I also have an affinity for. Uh, like Greek mythology and stuff like that. I'm by no means an expert in that area, but I always love stuff that sort of piggybacks off of that lore. Um, so it was it was really cool and kind of refreshing to see a monster that wasn't a vampire <laughs> or a zombie, yeah, exactly. or, you know, something <laughs> something in that in that realm. Not that I don't love that stuff, I do, but it was cool to see something just totally different. Um, so, you know, and they kind of, and when you watch the movie, if you think about it, they did use other elements of the lore they normally play with. Like there's a full moon element, which is sort of werewolfy, um, you know, where it's like, oh, this, this creature possesses someone when the moon is full. Um, so I, I kind of liked how they, they, they made it in line with the lore that people are kind of familiar with, but they brought it to a creature that was altogether foreign and new and they didn't really even explain it too much like it's kind of like oh it's the spirit of that thing i guess and it possesses someone or it is there and like it was kind of convoluted but it didn't matter um and i sort of like too that it goes through multiple people like i like that that you don't really have one hero you have like a family that's slowly trying to get to the core of this mystery. And it takes multiple people dying to answer the question. And I thought that was kind of a interesting conceit as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah but here's the th- that family is just dumb as a bunch of damn posts. Are they not? Nobody learns the lesson that they should. And they're not that movie. sad about their family members. dying. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, I, uh... I do think I, you know, watch, especially in this revisit, I really do think it's one of the better Hammer films to be found out there, you know. But weirdly enough, it seems like one that's not really spoken of that much. You know, it's not it's not a Dracula film. It isn't a it isn't a Frankenstein installment, but it is Terrence Fisher. It's Peter Cushing. It's Christopher yeah. Lee, kind of. You know, I I mean, it, I mean, it is. He's, really he's in it a good amount. Actually, he, he's in a he third sh- of the film. He, no, he shows yeah, up. Like yeah, he's seconds. in like thirty-five minutes of the movie. Yeah. Is he really? Yeah, minutes. yeah, he's in like a third of the movie. He's in a like decent he, chunk. Feels like he pops up for two seconds to set him up, and then he shows up right before the third act begins, and then he just takes it home. But which, you know, whatever. 
because in that last like 30 minutes you know hot damn is it christopher lee like, i mean he basically it... takes over the movie i mean and that's that's kind of how i look at it and and he's great i mean he's probably the best part of the film oh, i mean wonderful. his performance is he just commands the screen the second right. he's on it you but know? would you say would you agree with me though that it is you know it's not merely a solid damn movie it's a great movie but it does yeah. not seem to get that much love you know if you agree with me i'm curious to as to why you think that might be um well i have a a couple thoughts on that i mean for one it didn't it didn't make a big splash right when it came out um it doesn't like you said it doesn't have a recognizable sort of creature behind it uh and and frankly and I, you know, we're kind of jumping ahead with this, but the I think the weakest element of the movie is the physical appearance of the Gorgon. I don't think it's that great. I don't think the effects were very well done. And, and I think that sort of can kill the legacy of a creature feature, even if the rest of the movie around that stuff is, is really, really solid. Um, I think hammer Hammer's output at the time, a lot of what's really remembered are some of the iconic movie titles, even if they were underperforming at the box office at the time. You know, like we talked about, Phantom of the Opera was a box office failure, but to now it's considered one of their best films. Um, but it has the luxury of being called Phantom of the Opera. You know, it's, what, what it's you say going this- to be sought out. But we also have like Captain Clegg, you know, or Night Creatures. Well, I and think that's... Captain Clegg, you're right, absolutely. And this is very similar to that movie. I think I actually think of these movies as sort of one and the same in that they're both great movies and they don't have a ton to say, but they're just really entertaining, well done films. Um Raina, can either of you explain to me? why there is that much smoke coming out of one single cigarette. <laughs> that is a fucking fog machine of <laughs> cigarette right there. I, I, I don't question production values on Hammer. Look at it. I just accept it. <laughs> How did they even get that to happen? Holy shit. I also think it's uh pretty crazy that they Look literally the just like firebomb this guy's house. Like what the yeah. fuck? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I was like, are we not going to talk about the fact that they just threw a fucking torch in his house? And the cops like, are you cool? You should really leave town. Like, it's unreal. The reactions of these movies, like the things these townspeople do. Like, I, I don't often like talk to the screen, but I just kept going like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> and what's their motivation for covering up the Gorgon? Like, why? I never really quite understood why the town was so dead set on lying about it and not acknowledging it. It's just they didn't want the trouble. Like, the less people to poke around, the less deaths, the less, you know. But, like, people are dying anyway. I don't know. I, I, I just, it felt like one of those weird things where, again, the narrative in this movie almost feels like they don't really try to provide much explanation for what's going on. It's more about the immediate thing in front of you and like what the characters are trying to figure out rather than actually building some sort of like logical plot around it. 
Okay, they just tried to set this man's house on fire, and there is less smoke in that room now than when Peter Cushing was smoking a cigarette. I'm just throwing that out there. He needs one of those smokeless ashtrays. <laughs> okay, can we talk about the man here? Oh, the mustache. mustache. <laughs> I think the real, the person who really deserved top billing is Christopher Lee's mustache. That's what it's should doing, have been. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> So my wife uh, watched it with me and she said she didn't like when I said that that was Christopher Lee, she didn't recognize him. She was like, <laughs> what? Like, oh, is it? Oh, my God. So wait uh, a second, Paul, where were your daughters? Uh, they were asleep. Oh. So this was a late night watch. I know. Just uh, wanted to go on a little tangent about like the fact that I got into Hammer so much is sort of because of Christopher Lee because obviously the age that I am I grew up with the Star Wars prequels ah nice Ooh. and his character is straight up a reference to Hammer Dracula <laughs> which I point hilarious. he wears like a long black cloak and he's a count <laughs> you know what it's funny you say that I never put that together that he's a count I never once thought about that. Like, Count Dooku. Yeah, I was way too focused on the name Dooku. I'm like, Dooku? That was the name you went with. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I could never get over Dooku. Count, Count I'm like, D. what the hell? Any other name. Any other name. But yeah. We had to go with Dooku. But that's fine. I, that's, I, you know. I find it pretty wild, though, that George Lucas just straight up created, like, a main Star Wars villain just kind of like as a giant reference to Hammer Horror. Well, yeah, too, true. Really. I mean, well, I think and Peter Cushing, Cushing was uh, Grand yeah. Moff Tarkin. Right. Just, I didn't carry on that tradition. But uh, yeah, I was I was pretty older when I realized, I'm like, oh, that's a Hammer reference. <laughs> you know, I, I gotta say that I'm sure I'm not the only one to say this. I'm not a huge fan of the Star Wars prequels, of course, but uh, the third one I actually like quite a bit. But the second one, like, (sighs) I despised the experience of watching the second film in the theater during a midnight show. But every time Christopher Lee was on screen, I was grinning ear to ear. Mm hmm. And then I watched the third one, and they kill him in the first five minutes. And I was yeah. like, guys, what the fuck? I was going to say, he has a lot of screen time in episode two, and like total like five-minute screen time in episode yeah. And And I'll just apologize to our audience for spoilers for Star Wars episode three. You know, I know this was something <laughs> that people were trying to be surprised and saving those movies. So we apologize for spoiling the, uh, the fate of Count Dooku. He gets and, his head and cut the off. robot, there's like a robot that has a cold, I think. General Grievous or whatever, he's got like a really bad cold. Listen, those <laughs> are the most important, important spoilers of the movie. Nothing, yep. none yeah, of the other robot with a cold. Uh, Yoda like zips around like a little little crazy guy and fights with the lightsabers. Lightsabers uh, green though, so there you go. There, there's something about having the high ground. Oh, I remember, <laughs> there is that one. Uh, Jar Jar Binks is like a senator. What the fuck is happening? I don't know. But it's it's all was was it a droid or a monster 
that was all pervy and just kind of perfectly ripped Amidala's costume so that she was all Britney Spears midriff bearing. Like <laughs> that's episode two. Yeah, episode oh, two, all... man. That's the, the yeah, Clone so... Wars, they whatever. Exactly. Attack of the Cl- Attack oh. of the Clones. Hey, check <laughs> this out. They're in Which... Jack's castle right now. Oh, yeah. there we are. And also Baron Frankenstein's uh, home See, and all stuff. Now that's a spoiler, Jinx. I haven't watched this the is, I, I, I do yet. want to talk about the lighting in this set real quick. I This is another example of just the direction and the set design that I love. Like in those wide shots, you could see like red, reddish hued lights in the background creating like a pretty cool depth of field. So there's this like a lot of interest in the space. There's different kind of colors coming from different places. Gotta love the um, Star Trek eye light. Yeah, the whole place just feels like haunted and alive. I love the mirror behind him. There's just lots of little touches that that flesh out the space and that make it feel grander than it probably is. Um, and this is another one of those moments that just builds such great dread and tension without having to rely on any sort of, you know physicality it's like arbogast walking up the stairs in psycho you know it's just right. you yeah. know it's coming you know but he makes you wait for it yeah now correct me if i'm wrong is this also the outdoor set for horror of dracula like uh the backyard well <clears throat> I, I i don't know i think i think i mean most of this was shot at bray so <laughs> It's going to be the same areas redressed, um, but that's a good point. It looks similar. Probably is. Yeah, it's like definitely it, the, the castle for me. me yeah, I think you're right. That's a really good catch. And how crazy is it between the two different directors how different that space can look? Mm-hmm. You know, when when Freddie Francis shoots at Nebel of Frankenstein. It's all just like stone gray and blue and kind of, you know, desaturated in a way. And uh, well, again, very real and very grounded. But when Terrence Fisher shoots it, you know, it's very alive and gothic and, you know, very EC comics with, uh, you know, br- oh, that's a great shot. Yeah. And a lot of it, too, is due to Bernard Robinson's set design and how he's able to redress things and repurpose them. You know, I mean, he granted he he matched it to the director's needs and vision, but that guy was a miracle worker. (laughs) All right. I'm going to hop off here for just a second and fix another drink. I will be right back. So now we can, like, talk shit about you. Are you gone? You know that when I do this, Paul, I never actually leave. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Oh, I was going to say, listen, Prince of Prince of Darkness, best hammer yeah, horror. All we're going to do is talk about Prince of Darkness <laughs> and how great it is. That's this the is next a, five minutes. <laughs> yeah, this is a Prince of Darkness commentary for the next five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've already covered Count Dooku, so I think we can move on to Prince of Darkness from, from Gorgon. So I think we're this is a well-rounded commentary. You You know, you never know what you're going to get. And, and, and that's what makes it exciting. I do like, sorry to pivot to the Gorgon, but I do like the stone <laughs> effects. <laughs> You're fine. Pivoting to the movie we're supposed to be doing a commentary for seems appropriate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. Stone makeup yeah. is quite nice. <laughs> yeah, I really like the stone stuff. Um, 
It kind of reminds me of uh, Game of Thrones a little bit. With, oh, with the grayscale. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was the yeah. first thing I thought of. I was like, oh, I wonder if this was sort of a influence on that in a way. I mean, I know like this isn't the first movie to propose people turning to stone, but like the progression of it. Mm-hmm. Like I, we, my wife and I were talking about how it's really cool how they don't just turn to stone. That depending on how you saw her and how you were exposed to her, there's sort of a timeline to it. He's able to write those letters as his body is slowly kind of succumbing to that. It it makes it – there's something about that that's a lot more disturbing than somebody just turning to stone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I like. I, yeah, I agree. I do like that slow transformation rather than uh, like Clash of the Titans status where they just turn instantly <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And um, no, and I think, well, again, and this is something that's really present in a lot of Fisher's films, but like it it reminds you of the human element and like what somebody would be going through were they to face off against uh, a Gorgon or or whatever. Like it, it, you, you kind of get in their headspace like, oh, this is a guy who's now has to write a letter to his son. (laughs) <laughs> who he knows is coming to face this same terror. He doesn't want his son to die like his other son has already died. And he's got to put that into words in a way that, that will affect his life or death. Um, and that's, that's just such a compelling place to put us before we even meet this character. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I really, really responded to it. So that way, by the time you get to sort of act two, where we're now kind of fully entrenched in this mystery, um, I was, I was all in. Yeah. I, I really, really bought into this movie right from the get go. Like it, it caught up in it right from that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So you, so if you're, you're a big vampire are you a big vampire person in general or just like the Dracula movies really caught you? Oh, um, at first it was the Dracula movies really caught me, but then it's just like vampire movies in general. Like I did like a massive deep dive this last year. I, I want to say I watched like almost a hundred different vampire films. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I imagine like uh, when you do that too, you start seeing like, a lot of themes show back up, right? Like, <laughs> do you find that like a lot of that stuff comes like references hammer specifically? Like does hammer have like this echoing, you know, effect throughout the vampire genre? So not necessarily. And that's kind of the reason why the hammer movies stand out to me. They, yeah. they kind of did their own thing almost. See, to me, I, the, the reading I got from hammer horror, like, hammer vampire but hammer horror in particular is they had a lot to say about like the sexual revolution of like the 60s and 70s yeah like um, like the sexual liberation that like women started to go through um i felt was shown like like not maybe not intentionally through the work of hammer but it was definitely like really like 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 kind of laying down the groundwork on those themes being explored in uh horror media. And to me, that's why they always kind of stood out, especially like, like I said, watching nearly a hundred vampire movies and the hammer ones are like, there's multiple hammer ones in my top 10 of all of those. 
That's awesome. Yeah, and and you're right. Like, especially when you think about the stuff they were doing in the '70s with like the vampire lovers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like, they they definitely were on the forefront of the sexual revolution, and mm-hmm. and and sort of normalizing what you can and can't show in a movie in a wide release movie. Yeah, um, and putting like you know different changing what might be considered a sexual norm or at least attempting to. And even though those movies were considered sort of like torrid when they came out, like I still think there's a a lasting impact of that and they reached a lot of audiences. Um, So, yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I never really thought of it that that way, you know, and when I think about, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say like quite prime example was horror of Dracula is like, um, when um Arthur's wife turns back to human at the end, like like her wedding ring reappears, it like could literally been symbolic of like a woman going through infidelity rather than a man. That's a really yeah, really good point. Well yeah, and a lot of times, you know, Dracula offers something more exciting and something <laughs> more maybe more fulfilling. And they take <laughs> yeah. it willingly. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um and I think the best vampire movies at least sort of explore that idea you know and i think a lot of hammer movies are interested in that i mean gorgon does that too mm-hmm. a little bit with um you know with how cushing relates to uh you know shelly's character um what was her name carla in the movie <laughs> i think uh yeah so like with him, she's sort of like bound to him, his assistant. Granted, they're not necessarily in a, a romantic relationship in the same way that, that she's proposing to be with, with Paul. But there's a cool sort of dynamic there where she feels beholden to him, but mm-hmm. is more enticed by this person that could offer her something more exciting and more romantically fulfilling. And a good metaphor for that is the creature that's embodying her, which I know I guess is a bit of a spoiler, but I think the movie broadcasts pretty clearly that she's the Gorgon, right? Oh, like, yeah, I'm sorry. Not, what? I, I, I don't like, I, I couldn't tell. That's, that's actually a good question. Like, do you think the movie intended that to be a twist or do you think it's supposed to be very, very clear that it's her? I think it's I not think... efficient or foul. Like, it doesn't really seem to commit to either. It's obviously not meant to be a huge twist. But at the same time, neither still do they they underline it and point at it and say, hey, this is what's going on. Um, it, it's just weird. You know, it, it's perhaps the movie's... And I like the movie, but I think its biggest failing is in how it handles that revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's a little bit obvious just because of how similar they look. Um, but that's not the, the storytelling's fault. It's more kind of the effects. Say, is it Barbara Shelley playing the Gorgon? It's mm-hmm. uh, no, it's somebody else. Is it? Is um, it not? Yeah, it's it's someone else. It's uh, it's like a form, like a dancer person. Because of her build and her height. Uh, and actually, I know that Barbara Shelley actually wanted to be the Gorgon. Like, she she argued for that to Hammer. Um, and 
they actually originally proposed a totally different makeup effect for her that was going to involve real snakes uh, on her head, <laughs> like actual nope. garden snakes. Um, <laughs> and they decided for like budget and logistical reasons that that was like not a thing. Um, and so they went with like a cheaper effect with a stand in. Um, so that is a, it's, it's a different woman. I, I don't know her name. I, I feel bad. But, uh, yeah, but they do kind of have a similar appearance, but I, I don't, I mean, just to be honest, like I said earlier, I do not really like how the Gorgon looks. I don't think she looks very intimidating at all. No. Although the movie, I think knows that too. And it's smart in that it keeps her hidden for the bulk of the run. Yeah, until the end when she just like steps into the light and you're like, why are we? highlighting this you know and the yeah, decapitation it's got that, is it's way kind of... too oh sorry no i'm sorry Go ahead. no i was just saying the decapitation is like way too visible you know i think it should be a lot more like you said in shadow yeah it's it reminds me in a weird way of ginger snaps where it's like that movie was smart in holding back on the big reveal, the big werewolf at the end, you know, it keeps it to shadow, it keeps it scary, but it's yeah. almost like the movie feels obligated to go ahead and just do a big unveiling in the final moments. When in fact, it's just kind of like, yeah, and I love ginger snaps. I adore ginger snaps. It's my favorite werewolf movie, hands down. But when it finally reveals the ginger wolf at the very end, you know, and it's brightly lit and the camera holds on it. It's just kind of like, Oh, guys, should so, we have done this? I'm thinking yeah. no. Although this scene's a really good example of showing it well, kind of. And this is such a great hammer, tension, rainy, windy sequence. Like the reflection in the water is pretty solid. Yeah, it is a damn good looking movie. Yeah, I found this scene to be really creepy and compelling. And I do appreciate the fact that they give some life to the snakes rather than them just being static and, you know, kind of flopping around everywhere. Yeah. Well, those were like controlled by uh, like a radio control, but they were connected by wires. And there was like a dude standing like 25 feet behind her, typically, like controlling each little wire that was moving the snakes around. So it's kind of an interesting setup. I just wish it had. I don't know, looked a little better. <laughs> I don't know if you all have already talked about this, but I, you know, Namoroff, you know, Cushing's character, his, uh, one of the more interesting things I find about this movie is that kind of feeling that, you know, again, he, he, when he shows up, we're, we're kind of thinking that he might be our hero, but the movie slowly leads us down the path of realizing that he's not. I, I think one of the major ways that it does it is kind of showing his weird, sort of entitlement toward Carla's affections, you know, and, and sort of underlining why she feels the need to kind of pull away from him and, you know, latch onto the other gentleman here, as it were. It's just, it, it kind of makes Cushing's character weirdly icky in a way, you know what I mean? Like he's, he's ostensibly kind of her caretaker, but obviously there are affections there that go beyond that that aren't reciprocated, but he hardly seems to, he never seems like he's going to force himself on her. Thank God. But at the same time, he's obviously pushing the envelope when he knows better, you know? 
yeah, I think I think that kind of ties into what what me and Paul were talking about about uh, the kind of sexual liberation revolution. Oh kinda God, I missed a lot. Okay, never mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we we uh, we got deep there for a second. Uh, ironically, when you weren't here. <laughs> yeah, we we probably the best part of the commentary, Jake. So I'm not gonna lie. Uh, but. <laughs> Is it me? Do I hold us back? No. Is that you're, what we're saying? You're, you, you are wonderful. Um, no, Paul just asked why I why uh, the Hammer movies stuck out to me, and I went on this like giant uh, like tangent about like oh well they stand out because they're kind of like almost a commentary on the sexual liberation that was going on in the late fifties, early sixties at the time. I'm like, oh, wow, like horror of Dracula straight up shows a woman going through infidelity. That's uh, that's kind of my favorite part of this podcast. Uh, the moments that I step away and then come back, whenever I listen to those moments back, I'm just like, oh, that's a new part of the commentary that I didn't get to hear, and it's all new to me. Well, you are in for a treat with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I, I yeah, I think that was that I totally agree. I, I believe that she's Hammer always tries to work that in. Um, to most of their films and Fisher is also interested in, in that liberation and exploring the dichotomy between duty and desire, right? Like, what am I, what am I supposed to do? Um, who am I supposed to be with versus what do I really want? Um, and that's also embodied with the duality of her soul, right? Like she's split in two. She's at once this creature, this ancient evil that, desires i guess to just turn people into stone for whatever reason um and then a a woman who just wants to escape this trapped this prison that she's become trapped in um and I, i like the idea throughout the film of her like able to escape when the moon is not full but when the moon's full it's sort of too late for her it makes you wonder that you know well, wouldn't she still be beholden to this creature regardless of where she was if the moon was full? And and then it, it, to me, it sort of suggests, well, perhaps not. You know, maybe the the soul of this creature is localized to this, this place. Um, and there is a way for her to escape. But the confines of the society under which she's, you know, that she's beholden to, she's not able to get away. Um, and I think that's indicative of a lot of women's experiences at the time. Mm-hmm. Do you also feel like going back to Nemiroff for a second, I, we talked about him potentially being sold as a hero early on and then also being kind of villainous. Is he ever fully villainous though? Do you think like is, are his intentions purely evil at any point or is he a guy who's just kind of misguided and doing his best? I think he's, neutral but because he doesn't play an active side it could be viewed as villainous it's like look at everything that's going on and you're just kind of like taking a step back from everything that's fair yeah i think at a certain point neutrality becomes evil or bad i mean evil such a strong word i i don't think peter cushing's evil but I do think he's the one of the primary villains of the film. I mean, he's essentially 
standing aside as these these people are bullied and you know denied basic rights and protection uh he's actively lying to them um and he's allowing this creature to continue to kill even though he's uniquely positioned to be able to help stop it um you know he lies in court he he dooms this this innocent man's soul to uh you know to being labeled as a murderer um which i would think in terence fisher fisher's eyes for all intents and purposes peter cushing is sort of the one of the evil presences of the film um, because he has a conscience and he's not following it mm-hmm. i got you yeah because to me like the gorgon in a way the gorgon's not evil it's just doing what it does like it's just a it's a spirit it's just a thing it's a it's a thing that's there you know and barbara shelley isn't actively killing people um she's a victim of this spirit that that's surrounding them and she could escape it as could all people if it weren't for the denial of society that they need to get away or they need help or that you know, they need to face this thing as real. Um, it's, it's sort of like indicative again, something comes up in a lot of these movies is that the, the townspeople or whoever are unwilling to accept like harsh truths and would rather just pretend it's not there and let it continue to happen than actually deal with the problem and find a solution to it. For, for, off a little tangent right now the hammer ultimate collection is on sale for 46 dollars currently <laughs> yet again go. that price cheaper than jinx paid for it <laughs> over the place all over the place you know i don't regret paying 70 bucks for 20 movies you know amazing transfers and i will note i did get the inner sanctum mysteries box set for 12 bucks so. yeah cheaper than me sir can we talk about how this coffin's buried like two feet underground? Yeah. That annoyed the shit out of me more than <laughs> give me a story where a woman is possessed by a snake headed mythological ghost slash demon. You know what? Fine. But a coffin buried six inches below the surface of the earth, I call bullshit. It's kind of bullshit. I I would never be able to remake this movie because I'd be like, we're getting Sam Worthington in the lead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I want to see Sam Worthington go up against another Gorgon. <laughs> hey, if Sam Worthington isn't available, you can always go with Luke Evans. He is a solid choice for replacement. <sighs> Wasn't Luke Evans also in Clash of the Titans? Now that I think about it. Was he? I think he played Apollo. Oh, he probably was. Oh, like I'm, I didn't see it. Right Do now. I need to see that movie? Is it uh, good? Yo, I it's I, fun. It's terrible, but it's fun as hell. Really? Okay. The All sequel right. too. I, the sequel I, is even wonkier, but still pretty fun. Luke Evans. I, I avoided it because it just looked so not good. But maybe, maybe I need to give it a shot. It's got it's a great the, cast: Liam Neeson, uh, Mads Mikkelsen, uh, Nicholas. Yeah. Huh. There's a lot of Luke Evans. You know, uh, check it out. 
you know, the great thing about Nicholas Holt is that he, number one, played the beast, and number two, isn't a massive Trump supporter. So, oh, well. You know, if you if you need to pick a beast to uh, celebrate, you know, maybe he's the one, not Kelsey Grammer. Just throwing that out. <laughs> Didn't you to... see that weird-ass thing on Twitter yesterday? Oh, where everybody changed their photo to, like, beast? Oh, yeah. why did that? Why did that happen? So I missed out on why that happened. There was a dude who I like quite a bit. I'm not. I hope he doesn't. I I'm, I doubt he even listens to this. He doesn't even follow me on fucking Twitter, so I can't imagine he listens to this podcast. But uh, I like the dude. His name's Dinosaur Dracula. He's always posting cool stuff like uh, you know old promotions and shit from like 80s, 90s, the early aughts. Like uh, check out this old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cereal, and you know uh, blah blah blah, shit like that. Anyway, he he started this thing yesterday there was kind of a lead up to it but he was like hey for one day and one day only let's all change our avatars to uh or our profile pics to the beast from the x-men movies but it has to be kelsey grammar it has to be kelsey grammar's beast and i'm like you know if it's just the beast fine does it have to be fucking kelsey grammar maybe i'm being too precious about this i don't know and i can still watch john carpenter's vampires and dig jack crow even though he's fucking played by james woods but there was just something that rubbed me the wrong way where i'm like okay you 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 guys know that not three or four months ago kelsey Grammer was stumping for trump pretty fucking hard right does that not give you pause mm-hmm. on celebrating a character that he played i i just i don't know i'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that on my fraser rewatch i learned that that show is highly transphobic Oh really? Really? There is. I haven't, a, I haven't watched it in so long. There is a that's lot of sad to hear. Not, not great humor in it. <laughs> you know what's weird is, is like I, and it's a good thing in a way that we're now in a place where we can look back on that stuff and call out that stuff and it, to even recognize it in the first place. But it's like you know it bums me out to think that as a kid I would have watched Frasier. I did watch Frasier. Mm-hmm. I don't remember any of that, and I should. You know, it, it should have. Yeah. Raise one. Same thing with like you know, as early as ten or twelve years ago, probably I revisited the first Ace Ventura movie. Oh, yikes! And <laughs> and laugh my ass off at it, and then probably, and then forgot about it because it is. I mean, it's it's a disposable, you know, kind of yuck fest of a movie. That's just what it is, you know. <laughs> um, but then somebody pointed out, like probably five or six years ago, they were like wow, I can't believe how many people still like that movie considering how transphobic it is. And I was like, what are you talking about? That movie is not, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. You know, and it was just this huge revelation for me where I was like, how much stuff have I watched and enjoyed over the years when I was a kid and not old, you know, not old enough at least to see through that shit, you know, that that I still, you know, somewhere in the back of my uh, uh, memory banks, appreciate on some level that I haven't been able to reevaluate that I haven't rewatched that I have no idea currently is actually pretty awful in its own right. You know what I mean? So, uh, the, that Netflix documentary disclosure actually tackles a lot of that super, super well and saying it's, that like, it was just the culture at the time. Like it was just ingrained disclosure. Yes. And that's on Netflix. Yes, it's a Netflix original. Okay, I'll look that up. Cool, thank you. But I'm it's about it uh, yeah, it's about a uh, trans representation in media and how saying like at the culture, it's like 
trans people were just viewed as like oh it's either a man in a dress or a woman in a suit and it's like it was just kind of played off for laughs or like look at this freak and it was kind of like pop culture at the time it was so ingrained in everybody that nobody noticed that like when ace ventura goes off of the rails like that until you really step back and look at it and go like this is like actually pretty harmful to trans people yeah that's a really good point and and it took me a long time to realize like as i got older how many movies use someone like a trans person as a villain like as like the psychotic villain um and once you start looking at it it's really upsetting you know how often that comes up in the 80s and 90s yeah there is even stuff that i never would have you know it wasn't that long ago that i rewatched um mars attacks you know i did a a retrospective on it for a horror hound and in the first three minutes, there is this really sort of like, it, it just it, it lands with a thud kind of joke with a Janet Reno type. And it's just kind of like, uh, and, and here's the thing, had completely forgotten about it, like didn't even remember. Uh, I didn't remember the cattle on fire either. So, um, but, you know, watching that movie again, I was just kind of like, I, I it, it, was that such a thing back in the day, back in the 90s, that it seemed so, you know, such a weird kind of pot shot for studio movies, no less, to try and take? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah it's, and it's Mars Attacks is a movie that I watched a lot when I was a kid, and I remember nothing like that. You know what I mean? That's the thing that's that's weird about it, is it just it, it washes over you. And it's part of this bigger thing, which is what makes those kinds of things dangerous um, because you don't you don't separate them out. You know, you just kind of accept them as the whole. So it's it's good that we're at least going back and sort of reanalyzing some of this stuff and hopefully come to a healthier place with it. So even though we can still watch some of these movies, we can at least view them with the knowledge of like what is and isn't okay, you know. Well, I think that's where some place like, and I, I hate to bring it all the way back to the very beginning of this conversation, but now that it's kind of ingrained in popular culture, now that it's this juggernaut that, you know, knock on wood, seemingly cannot be stopped, I think that's where Marvel and the MCU can kind of step in and, you know, provide more representation than it has certainly up until this point to sort of, you know, there are kids growing up watching these movies i think that's probably the best way to reach them early on and to you know uh, present to them the world in which they live as opposed to the world that you know perhaps paul you and i got you know in the late 80s and early 90s that normalized you know on some level like hatred you know um that's my hope anyway you know when when are we finally going to get a a a trans marvel superhero you know Uh, that seems to me like it, it it should be a point of concern at this point. What, 22, 23, 24 movies in? But I don't know. It's That's a weird ramble. I don't know if I'm coherent at this point. i got to tell you, the 50-proof uh, <laughs> banana liqueur, it's starting to hit pretty hard. So apologies if uh, all that came out as a jumble. <laughs> well, the, the good news is Christopher Lee is here. <laughs> His mustache is ready to go. Can we say finally? Finally? He's finally here, you mean? 
finally. This is a beautiful looking movie. Yeah, lighting is something that Fisher does incredibly well. <laughs> well even the the matte paintings, what is it about like paintings that, you know, are equally not as realistic as say any computer generated backdrop, but they work so much better, you know? They they look so much more beautiful. Somebody was pointing out, uh, did either of you see the, uh, was it FX that did the uh, television remake of Black Narcissus? Was oh, it? God, yeah. <laughs> have, have you, did you watch it? No, I saw the trailer and like the comparison shots and I was like, yeah. I'm like, if I have nothing positive to say and I know <laughs> I'm not going to have anything positive to say, I'm just not even going to bother. Yeah, it's just it's you you have all of this money now, you have all of this technology and yet you cannot match the beauty of a simple match uh 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 matte painting from what 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. with what you got, you know, it, what they presented there was just kind of flat and unappealing and you know, and you look at the uh the shot from the original movie and it's like it's still jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Barbara Shelley is supposed to be 25 in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. I wonder how old she was back then. I'm gonna do a little googling here and see. That's crazy. Alright, so she looks like old as dirt or anything. I'm like, but that is the oldest looking twenty year old I've ever seen. <laughs> okay, you ready for this? She was thirty two. Yeah. I, I... Which she still looks a little older than that, even not in a bad way, but she doesn't I don't know. I think of 25-year-olds these days. I think of, like, to me, a 25-year-old is still a kid, you know? I I look at her, and I see a woman who's been around for some time. How old do you think Christopher Lee looks? I think Christopher Lee looks like he is a 45-year-old man trying to be 60. Do the Google. Googling now. All right, I'm let's like, just, for the rest of the movie, let's just guess the age of the characters on the 22. screen. Okay, so he was 42 years old. Oh, I thought you were trying to say he was 22. He was, he was oh, 22. So how crazy is it that Christopher <laughs> Lee in this movie is 10 years older than Barbara Shelley? And looks like he's like 30 years older. Yep. I was going to say, he looks much older than she does. I think just Christopher Lee had the unfortunate like luck of looking old his entire life. <laughs> like, well, that's a really this, good point. Without yeah. shaving his head, like so many like modern action dudes do these days. I'm thinking of like Bruce Willis. You know, they shave their heads when they're like 35 or 40, and then they kind of look the same for the next 30 years. You know, you can't really gauge their aging as long as they take reasonable care of themselves it's kind of like what jason statham is doing right now jason statham is going to look 40 for about the next 20 years and then he's going to age real fast wait 25 years old that means that in my remake of this with sam worthington i could get four you <laughs> as barbara shelley's character okay all yes. you're doing is making me desperately want to see this remake of yours and it's hurting my heart because I don't know that I'm ever going to get to see it. Not that I don't believe that you could do it. I do. Mm -hmm. But, so, you know. But you have to call it Clash of the Gorgons. 
Clash of the Gorgons and followed it, up with a rat. Oh, are there going to be multiple Gorgons in it? Like, yes. are we going to have more than one? Well, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be the Gorgon. Um, I forget her name in this one. Um, it's going to be yeah. her wanting for Magera wanting revenge for Sam Worthington's ancestor killing his ancestor Perseus killing Medusa. Yeah. I like it. From now on, I'm going to call her the Meg. The Meg. The Meg. That's what my remakes call. No, I'm kidding. Speaking of which, where's the Jason Meg. Statham? You get Jason Statham in here, the man isn't going to fuck around. He oh. is going to roundhouse kick Barbara put, Shelley's head, clean off her shoulders, movie done. Put, put the mustache on yeah, Statham. Mustache. Give him the mustache, and the whole thing's done. The yeah, mustache a, will roundhouse kick. And it's got, like, Guy Ritchie-style action. Oh, my okay. God. Right. Oh, my God. Can you... Okay, here's the thing. You. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> we were just talking last week about those sort of weird hammer fusions that happened and that could have happened oh. and should have happened had oh. it continued on, right? Okay, okay. Imagine like mid aughts hammer directed by like fledgling filmmaker Guy Ritchie. Imagine his kind of energy applied. To, well, okay, you know what? We don't have to imagine. We have Sherlock Holmes. I think that's what a Guy Ritchie Hammer movie would look like. That's about right. It'd be either that or Snatch with Vampires. Oh my god. Well, Snatch with Vampires just sounds delightful to me. I mean, that just sounds great. That sounds like an easy 5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. I feel like you just pitched a Netflix movie. (laughs) uh... Snatch with Vampires, done. (laughs) Give me money. Anything anything to declare? (laughs) Yeah, don't go to Transylvania. You know? I watched that movie. I'd watch so, the shit out so, of that movie. Brad Pitt tangent. Have you guys ever seen Spy Game? Paul, take it. Oh, have I seen Spy Game? I saw it like four days ago. <laughs> so you know the part where he's like, hey, where'd you learn to shoot like that? And he says like, oh, Hemet, California. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that is my hometown. <laughs> really? Really? That is my hometown. That's funny. Yeah, I just, I just, because it's a, a a Tony Scott movie. So it, it's crazy that it's referenced in that because it's just a little shit stain of a town about thirty minutes away from Palm Springs that like nobody talks about. That's funny. Um, That's our claim, our claims to fame, where there's an episode of Love. Um, did you guys ever see that the the Judd Apatel produced Netflix show? No, I never did. Uh, there's an episode where they go on vacation to Palm Springs, quotations, and they end up in Hemet, California. <laughs> and it's just like a run And then our <laughs> other claim is that the finale to the original Fast and the Furious, uh, the very first one, was yeah. filmed in on one of our highways. Oh, okay. So it's like a billion dollar Fine. franchise start here. Yeah, that's where I wanted the Fast and Furious franchise to go. You know what? It's gone so crazy at this point. We're something like nine entries in and a spinoff. You know what? At this point, vampires. Why not bring creatures <laughs> into it? Why not give me like vampires and werewolves in that universe? It's not that far of a stretch at this point. Oh, they could have made Idris Elba and Hobbs and Shaw like an, a werewolf or Gorgon and gave. Oh them a- my god. A- <laughs> you that oh what? i mean i would could you watch... imagine that have been the case if could you imagine watching hobbs and sean halfway through all of them joking around like oh i'm black superman you know like and imagine just halfway through at night 
moon in the sky, he just werewolves out, the audience would have lost their fucking mind. And then he gets behind the wheel of a car and drag races as the werewolf. From the monsters. Yes. You get Rob Zombie directing Hobbs and Shaw too, like I'm there. Oh man. There'd be a lot of a lot of foul language in Rob Zombie's Hobbs and Shaw. I think. (laughs) A lot of of crass language. (laughs) I honestly do think I think Rob Zombie has and this doesn't have to go on we don't have to go on a Rob Zombie tangent. Oh, you know I will. I know you will. I know you will. I just I, I gotta ask a Phantom Limbs question when you're done with this. Oh yeah, okay, okay. So two seconds. I I would just say I I remember reading along okay, I'll make this a, a little slower than fast, but I'll do my best. I remember reading way back in the day that um there was this big hardcover book for Grindhouse, uh the uh Tarantino Rodriguez joint, right? And they had the fake trailers and everything it was fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Rodriguez talked about you know honing his skills as a director but people would always ask him well hey you know you're friends with tarantino have you ever thought about having him punch up your scripts have you ever thought about bringing anybody in to punch up your dialogue to do this do that and he was like well he was like i'm a writer too i may not be at the level of director that i am writer and he was like but i'm never going to get there if i don't keep making up my own when i make my movies when i write and direct my movies i want to know that they're me Right. And so part of me respects zombie for kind of whether or not that's his thinking. I kind of appreciate the fact that it's all him. Like he's a writer, he's a director, you know, he makes his movies fully a Rob Zombie film, right? Whether or not I believe in the possessory credit or not. At the same time, I can't deny the fact that I think zombie has a great eye. I think he has a great ear for needle drops and choosing his soundtracks. I just wish I would even be fine with him writing a screenplays. I just wish he would bring somebody in to be like, you know what, Rob, if we can tighten this up here and if we can fix a couple of these problems here and if we could go ahead and just knock out a good 170 fucks out of this script and make it sound like, oh, I don't know, actual human beings speaking. I think we got ourselves a picture here. Unless it's Richard Brake, then that's all his dialogue needs to be. Well, Richard Brake <laughs> is like he makes fuck sound Shakespearean, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I'm sorry. What was your uh, what was your Phantom Limbs question? I apologize. So you could just say yes or no, and just call me dumb if I if you've done a Phantom Limbs on this and I haven't read it yet. Um, do, do you know stuff about the Rob Zombie Blob remake? No, I know nothing about it, and I'll go ahead and reveal something to you. Uh, okay, so for listeners out there who might be a tad bit confused, uh, I write a column for Bloody Disgusting called Phantom Limbs, wherein we basically – I track down unproduced uh, horror sequels and remakes, and basically kind of I, – I, I sort of tap one maker who was involved and do an interview where they describe how the uh, – the project came to be, what the story of said project was going to be, why it fell apart, and how, or rather, whether or not it could uh, live on in some form later on down the line. Uh, I've done about 20 or 21 of them at this point. I have two white whales that I'm chasing at the same time. Uh, one, I'm not going to reveal. I'll tell you both uh, once we're, we're off here. Uh, but my second one is Rob Zombie for a handful of things. I would kill, literally kill somebody to talk to Rob Zombie about his unmade 
the Crow 2037, A New World of Gods and Monsters. It was meant to be the third Crow film back in the late 90s. It was going to be this massive, budgeted, uh, hyper-stylized, action-horror, universal monsters throwback. Utterly bug-nuts insane. You can find the script online, and it's probably the best thing he's ever written. And it was one of the first things that he ever wrote. The scale of the movie was mind-boggling. Christopher Lee had apparently signed on to play the film's villain back in the late 90s. Wow. Uh, I love that I asked this so we could connect it. (laughs) Yeah, he wanted... He wanted, uh, so Christopher Lee was going to be like the satanic priest who murdered this young boy and his mother in a satanic ritual. If you know anything about the Crow movies, you know that when there's a great wrong and a great sadness done to a certain type of person, basically the Crow, rather than taking their soul to the land of the, the dead, will bring them back to life to basically mete out vengeance. Well, in his screenplay, the young boy is resurrected. And he has no idea what's happened. He thought he simply just lived. So he grows up thinking he's just naturally impervious to harm and not remembering all the horrible shit that was done to him. And then when he's an adult, he's basically a bounty hunter in this weird dystopian sci-fi world where, you know, creatures roam the earth. And then, you know, once he's a man, the crow comes back to him and basically reminds him of what happened to him and makes him realize that he needs to basically set off on this uh, quest of vengeance. And so he does. And uh, what follows is like part sci-fi movie, part fantasy quest, part horror movie, part revenge flick. It's it's just it's so fucking cool. And he and I love this about zombie apparently one of the early battles he had with the studio before they made this, or well, before they didn't make it rather, was that he wanted like Willem Dafoe as the lead. They wanted like a young lantern jawed, you know, hot young actor of the the day type to play the lead. And he was like, no, I want Willem Dafoe. And I want Christopher Lee to be my villain. And, you know, I want all this. And eventually it just, it didn't happen, but I would kill to talk to him about that. Uh, not necessarily the story, because the, like I said, the whole screenplay is out there for you to find. But just like, you know, he had production artwork made up by, uh, you know, the guy who worked on Alien Resurrection. Uh, he, he, you know, I, I, I would just love to pick his brain as to how it came together, why it fell apart, what he feels about it now. Now, having said that, there are loads of other projects that he never, you know, got to do. And the blob is definitely one of them that I would love to talk to him about because his take on the blob from what little I can glean from the few, you know, bits and pieces that are out there sounds absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember like reading like an interview where he like briefly talked about, I was like, good Lord. He was like, it was just going to be like this mass of like body parts and blood and guts. I was like, that sounds wild. Well, it looks like, Oh, sorry, Paul. No, you're fine. I can I can only imagine what he would have done with that. And and frankly, I would have much rather seen him remake the Blob than Halloween, um, because I think there's so much more that he could have done with something like that. With his sensibilities, with his sensibilities, he should have been remaking the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, well, he that's... did. He called it House of a Thousand Corpses. Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, I. <laughs> 
I, I appreciate what he tried to do with Halloween. I Like I said, I will always love Halloween too. But I don't think that world is necessarily suited to him when so many others clearly are. And the blob... Like what? Have you seen Arena? Have you seen the uh, the concept art for no. uh, for okay. Rob Zombies? Yeah. Okay. So a couple of uh, pieces of concept art leaked I'm uh, right a now. while back, and yeah, yeah. If you can Google, it, if you can find it, but I mean, obviously, Sherry Moon figures into the imagery, and the blob itself is like this. <gasps> I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just bizarre. I love this. Did you find it? I found it on like movie web. <laughs> yeah, it's oh, not... this looks so good. I, I would love to see that guy get a big budget and somebody just turn him loose, you know, it, rather than uh it seems like from what I've read, like he's always fighting some sort of constraint, you know, with uh with the Halloween movies, you know, the the Weinsteins were cutting weeks off of his shooting schedule and just being all around bastards with him. Oh. With uh you know, the Lords of Salem, he lost a cast member halfway through and had to completely scrap, you know, like three quarters of the flashback stuff that he had planned on shooting for it. You know, uh, just stuff like that. It's like, man, I just wish somebody I wish he could have an easy go of it with a big budget and just see what that would yield. See, I'm like, I love Rob Zombie. I'm like one of like 10 people that was like. Oh, three from hell is just as good as Devil's Rejects. Y'all are just afraid to admit it. <laughs> I listen, I told you when you asked me on that it was just going to be hot takes from me. <laughs> hot takes are the best kinds of takes, though. Yeah, they are. that's what we're here. That's why we're here in the Hammer Pub is for hot takes. Yeah, I much prefer a hot take as opposed to. Like the three hundred and second take that I've already heard. Yeah. No one wants. Yeah. No one wants to hear. Be like, I love the thing. Of course, you love the thing. We all yeah. love the thing. Everybody <laughs> loves that. <laughs> we um, want to hear about three from hell. We want to hear about how three from hell is just as good as Devil's Rejects because Richard Brake brings that whole damn movie home. I, I will say, Richard Br- Richard Brake is so fucking great, and so, he is. I haven't uh, seen it yet. I have not watched Three from Hell, so I need Paul? to check it out. I think I talked to you twice, Paul, about Three from Hell in the first time. And Raina, I'll I'll give you a bit of insight on my first viewing of it. So I went you remember like it didn't get the wide theatrical release like House or uh or the Devil's Rejects. It was kind of a fathom events three night thing. Like, you know, you come one of the three nights, you get like a different, you know, little bonus feature and you know, and then after those three nights, that's it. We'll see you on Blu-ray in a month. And so I went one of those nights, I got like a cool little mini poster and I went to go sit with the audience and it was, you know, maybe like 50, 60 people, which for a weeknight horror movie, Bradenton, Florida, not that bad. And I felt deeply uncomfortable when, you know, the, the, the rejects characters, they're, they're, they're rapists, you know, they're murderers, they're very bad people. You know, and as as charismatic as they are and as fascinating as they are to watch, you know, when you watch House of a Thousand Corpses where, you know, there's the villains in the background or when you watch The Devil's Rejects where there's sort of this handoff between victim to villain and then we follow the villains. Oh, were, they, were they cheering whenever the Firefly family did something heinous? They were hooting and hollering and laughing. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, and it made me feel like, I was like, 
it, it was almost like a second horror movie that I was experiencing at the same time being in that auditorium. I was like, am I, am I going to get fucking killed? So like, they, they, like I was shrinking down in my seat and there was, so as a result, there was a barrier between me and the movie. And I was like, I don't like this movie because it is glorifying these characters. Now, now here's the crazy thing because I'm a completist. And I had a conversation with Paul where I said much the same thing about a month later, I picked it up on Blu-ray and I popped it in with the sole intent just to watch the making of, because I will say the making of documentaries on zombies movies are usually pretty fucking fantastic. They're like feature length. Yeah. 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 And plus they, they really give like a nuts and bolts, fly on the wall kind of point of view of filmmaking. It's not like a bullshit puff piece EPK. It's like, here's what happens on the set of a movie, you know? And so I was like, I'm going to buy the Blu-ray because I'm a completist. I'm going to put it on my shelf, but you know what? I just paid 20 bucks to buy it. I'm going to pop it in. I'm going to watch the making of, and I did. And it made me want to see the movie again. And then I watched the movie and then I realized the movie didn't glorify those characters at all. The movie takes to task people who glorify those characters, yeah. which is so, a completely different thing and kind of fascinating. In it's a like way. a satire of it, of like yes. those rabid fans. Absolutely. And so I realized that really? was like, the movie wasn't the problem. The audience was the problem. I, I, will, I, say, I will say this. I was in, I was a manager at AMC at the time, and I worked those Fathom events. Those were some of the rudest people I've ever dealt with. <laughs> like, no. They gave us fifty posters to give away, oh, and God. our and our first like Fathom event for it had at least three hundred and fifty people. So oh, I had three hundred people. A lot of hell that night, didn't you? Yeah, I got a lot of hell that night. I, I worked – you know, that's so funny. I worked as a manager to Cinemark up north in uh, eastern Kentucky, a little place uh, called Ashland, Kentucky. I worked there for 15 years. It was my uh, it was my childhood theater, and I started working there right out of high school, and I just kind of stuck around for a decade and a half, long past my expiration date. But I loved working in a movie theater almost as much as I hated working in a movie theater. Like, it just depended on the audience. It just depended on the people, but there were a lot of great times there. Um yeah, I don't envy you that at all that you had to deal with. I will say one weird thing about it. Out of that entire audience that was sitting in there, the closest people that sat next to me mm-hmm. was like a middle-aged woman and her teenage daughter. Mm-hmm. And they were the nicest like people because when the credits came up, the woman looked at me and she was like, well, what'd you think? And I was just like, oh, I don't know. I got to think about it for a bit. And she was just like, yeah. She's like, you know, I don't really care for these movies, but I do it for her. And like, she nodded to the daughter who was wearing like a Rob Zombie shirt. And I was just like, that's kind of awesome. I love seeing a parent bring a child who's into the stuff that the parent necessarily wouldn't be. Not necessarily, eh, necessarily, eh, fuck, I can't speak tonight. You know what I mean? Uh, the parent who wouldn't necessarily be into that stuff, but I love that she brought her daughter just to support her. And My mom did that for me with uh, back in 2007 with Rob Zombie's Halloween. <laughs> I was younger than 17 at the time, and I like begged her to go see it because I was like, I love Rob Zombie movies and I love Halloween. Like, I have to see this. <laughs> yeah. I think that's awesome. But yeah, no, Three from Hell. Paul, if you haven't seen it yet, it is 
It's a I, far more interesting movie than yeah. I think oh, you might think it is, and that I certainly thought it was even after having seen it the first time. You, you all have definitely sold me on it. And funny enough, I own it. I bought it. <laughs> I just haven't watched it yet. Because oh I'm a completist too. So like I, I own all of Zombies films, I think. I don't know if I have a, a what is it, 31? I don't think I have that. But Do I have all of Super Beasto? Do I have what? El Super Bisto? Uh, no, I don't. You're right. I don't have a copy of that either. I'm like, I sometimes I feel like I'm like one of ten people in the world that like saw that movie and loved it. Raise I'll hand. check it out. I mean, I haven't. I just yeah. haven't seen it. Yeah, but if it's yeah, I'll check it out. Oh, it's so good. It. Okay. There was a comic book that he released back in the odds. It wasn't too far after uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. It was called um, uh, Spook Show International. And it was kind of like a Tales from the Crypt comic book that he wrote that had different stories. And one of them was uh, El Superbisto about basically uh, kind of an El Santo-esque luchador whose job it was was to track down and kill monsters. And uh, okay. yeah, the cartoon is the cartoon adaptation is a lot of fun. I'll check it out. We're just telling Paul about all these great movies tonight. <laughs> <laughs> This is just my night to listen and learn. You know, that's how I'm looking at it. <laughs> listen, we got we got the Gorgon going and like her effects are like not not great right here. Throwing that out there. Yeah, I just noticed. too much light. We shouldn't see as as much as we do. It's yeah, it's it way too visible. What it, can I agree with you that she is definitely by the she's definitely well lit, too well lit. But at the same time, at this point in the movie, if they had not revealed her and we made it to the credits with her sticking to the shadows the entire time, would that not feel like a bit of a cheat? Okay, yeah, I the valid point. Well, but, yeah, uh, and my issue, I, I guess my issue isn't maybe with the filmmaking, it's with the effects. I just yeah, wish they had done different. Shop. <laughs> that Sorry. especially doesn't work. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> the eyes. Yeah, it's real rough. Real rough. Christopher Lee. But everything else is solid. Like, yeah. This is really good. Like him turning to stone and his realization that it's. I don't think James was here for that stone makeup conversation. All oh, yeah, we did talk about do. the stone stuff. Yeah. It does not look any look. I don't understand. The man had no survival instinct whatsoever. He needs, he needs to know. Okay, that shot right there reminds me of Possessor. Um, <laughs> that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like her body's like being molded. Yep. Paul, I will ask you one quick question. I know we've talked about this before about Terrence Fisher. I just, I, I, I think it's kind of curious that this film twice shows us the image of uh, Christ being kind of discarded in the woods. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and it, it, there's this idea that there's a supernatural entity, you know, at the heart of the story that resides in the forest, out of sight. You know, the, the, the bulk of the story resides in Vandorf, in polite society, in halls of academia for a time, you know, and all of our heroes have to sort of step outside of those trappings and, and ultimately, you know, believe in something bigger than they've allowed themselves to grasp in order to effectively confront the evil at the heart of the story. And to me, that just seems, that seems very Terrence Fisher to me. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, well, and and we've talked about, as you said, he he was an incredibly religious man and very interested in the soul um, and the the plight of mankind's morality um, and, and the sort of demonic challenges that are all around us. You know, I, I, I kind of think that he believed in evil in various forms um, because to truly believe in some sort of higher good, you, you kind of, it, it sort of begets a, a more subversive evil in that way. Um, so I think every movie he ever did when it comes to, good and evil, whatever the creature, monster, vampire, Gorgon, whatever it is, is representative of that other side of belief. Um, and to truly be devout and and move towards a higher plane, you have to kind of accept both and face both um, and make the decisions that are the hard ones to make. Um, for example, the protagonist in this film at one point has a chance to escape, you know, uh, she comes to him and sort of says, Hey, let's get out of here. We can go. Um, and Paul is just like, well, no, I have to, we can go, but we have to wait till tomorrow. I have to stay for Carl, you know, for Christopher Lee's character. I can't leave him. Had Paul followed his heart and, done what he deep down really wanted to do and ran away with uh, Carla, there's a chance that the ending we saw wouldn't have happened, you know? So I think there, there's always that sort of option in Terrence Fisher movies. There's always a way out in some ways, um, or there's a path towards just facing and defeating the evil. This was a movie that was more about to me, um, they succumb to the evil because they don't fully acknowledge it or do what they think deep down is right. Mm-hmm. Damn. I see that. <laughs> Hell yeah. Now we get into the deep conversation with this the movie. The deep over. shit. Yeah. Now, now that the movie is the movie's over. over. <laughs> We're going to talk about it now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Hey, overall, I think, yes, we would, we would all give this movie a thumbs up as far as hammer goes. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I own it. Good movie. Yeah, which, <laughs> Randy, you were telling me um, uh, it, it was a bit of a surprise for you that it actually wound up being in the Mill Creek collection, right? Yeah, so I was watching it on Tubi with ads where you can watch it for free if you don't know. But uh, I was like, huh. I was like, I did just get that hammer set. I'm going to see what's in that while I was watching it. And I was like, well, the Gorgon's on here ad free. <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> That's funny. I don't know that I've really dived into what is in that box set. I know, uh, obviously, the uh, the Revenge of Frankenstein is on there because it doesn't have its own single Blu-ray release yet for whatever yeah, right reason. Right in front of me, I can list it off. Oh, yeah. Uh, the Gorgon. I know Cash on Demand is on there, which is a thriller with Peter Cushing that I've really wanted to see, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. So there's The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, These Are the Damned, The Two Faces of Dr. Jekyll, The Old Dark House, The Gorgon, Cash on Demand, The Snorkel, Maniac, Die, Die, My Darling, Stop Me Before I Kill, Never Take Candy from a Stranger, Scream of Fear, The Strangers of Bombay, 
The Terror of the Tongs, The Pirates of Blood River, Sword of Sherwood Forest, The Camp on Blood Island, Yesterday's Enemy, and Creatures the World Forgot. Nice. You know, it's exciting to me that a lot of those titles I am not familiar with. So that is a whole lot of hammer that I can get familiar with that I I'm, I'm, that'll be a surprise to me. I, I would like to plug, um, not something I did, but uh, the Cobwebs podcast we talked about earlier. Uh, Daniel Epler did a whole episode reviewing that entire set. I have oh, not listened to that one yet, but I want to. Yeah, it's really good. Um, so if you're somebody listening to this that isn't sure if they want to pick it up or just kind of want, want to know a little bit more about the movies that are in it. That's a really good uh, podcast to listen to and kind of get a sense of like what all the movies are about. So uh, yeah. So plug for uh, cobwebs. Good deal. Cobwebs is a fantastic podcast. Um, you know, opinions on Dracula and told aside, I think it's one of the... Uh... You mean a movie we both liked, that we both said was good? Sorry. Boy, it didn't you, sound you, like you it. Go ahead and continue. It sure, it sure didn't sound like it. I'm just throwing that out there. I knew I, I was going to catch up for this. I leave it to listeners to discover that episode and to, to discover how much you two so clearly like that movie. Yeah. So clearly. It was good. It was oh. good. So <laughs> All right. So we have now seen the Gorgon. Paul, next yeah. up on the Hammer Pub, we're going to have to skip a handful of swashbucklers and thrillers to make ourselves, uh, well, to get ourselves rather, holy shit, I've had a lot of drinks, Paul. Um, right. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're going to have to skip over some swashbucklers. We're going to have to skip over some thrillers. Uh, we're going to have to, to do that to get to, are you ready for this? Ready. Dracula, Prince of Darkness will be our next Ooh. entry. And I believe, Paul, if you were telling me right, I think we already have a guest lined up for that. Is that right? I do. Yes, shall I we, do. Sh- should we reveal it now or wait until the episode drops? Uh, let's wait what? until it drops. So it's a fun surprise. All right. I'm like, you pretty- didn't ask me for that episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, although I will say this, Raina, we have loved having you on. I think I, I think I speak for Paul. Paul, do I speak for you? You absolutely speak for me. It was a pleasure. So thank you so much for being uh, on the. Uh, holy shit! I'm way more drunk than I thought I was. <laughs> Let me try this one more time. Let me back up. You're so really hammered. Hammered. Yeah. Uh, this. This. Yeah. This is more. The last two weeks have been more. Getting hammered with hammer as opposed to hammer pub. Um, okay, let me try this one more time. Raina, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciated it. Thank you so much for chatting the Gorgon with us. You are welcome back anytime. In fact, we hope you do come back. Yeah, thank you for having me. Always, always glad to hang out and talk about some hammer that I hadn't seen before that I ended up liking. Rock on. Now, can I ask, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future, either podcast-wise or writing-wise? Yeah, so um, you can keep uh, an eye out on my social media at JFC Doomblade on Twitter. I also do freelance work for BloodyDisgusting.com and ScreenQueens.com. Um, you can also follow my podcast at Horror In Session. We are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts. I think I'm just going to say who our next guest is just just because I'm really excited. Um, we have an episode this week that we're recording with uh, April Wolf. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, cool. So very excited for that one. Um, we, we just, we covered movie horror movies with like a certain theme and the theme she chose is very exciting. Can you, uh, it would it be too much to ask what her theme was? Yeah, I'll just say it. Uh, the theme is manifest destiny and we're covering uh horror Westerns. Oh, oh my cool. God. That's be really fun. I am. I am subscribing to your podcast as we speak. Yes, yes, I'm going on here right now. Hang on. I'm going to do that as well. I I I, I can't wait for that one. I I don't know. I don't know how, how, how much you all want to continue talking about this point. I know we've been at it for a while. But you mentioned April Wolf. I love the new Black Christmas, damn it. Oh, I'm a fan. That's why I asked her in the first place. That and I love her podcast as well. Wait, she has a podcast? Yes, uh, she runs a Switchblade Sisters, where each week uh, she deep dives on a genre film with a with a female film filmmaker or a female that's in the industry. So I am finding a lot of podcasts this week. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a good. Yeah, thing. it's on uh, Maximum Fun, right? It's one of the Maximum Fun shows. I believe Switchblade so. Yes. Yeah, I like I like Switchblade Sisters. It's a good show. So we had a a couple of weeks ago. We had a uh, Katie Walsh from there also on oh, our show. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. And we yeah. did it. We did a deep dive on folk horror and uh, oh shit! Oh, wow! Oh man! Ironically, one of the movies with Wicker Man, another crazy Christopher Lee performance. Yeah. <laughs> the Wicker Man is one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. Well, I, you got that episode you uh, can listen to if you want. <laughs> I'm I'm literally subscribing right now. I will be uh, listening to your backlog, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll report back on my favorite episode. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> and subscribed. Very cool. All right. And Switchblade Sisters, I'm going to subscribe to that. I'm just I'm going to go through all of this. Like uh, listeners out there, just they can follow me in real time as I follow other podcasts. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Yeah, it's, our podcast is all about spreading the love to other podcasts. That's yeah. what we're all about. The latest episode of Switchblade Sisters, she did a deep dive on Jackass, uh, the movie with uh, the director <laughs> of Dick Johnson is Dead. I was, it's, it's such a good episode. I love it. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. That is awesome. Well, I can't wait. Rainit, thank you again so much for being on. Uh, we hope you come back sometime, and we uh, we had a blast chatting with you. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you. All right, and closing out, Paul, where can folks find you at online? Uh, they can find me at on Twitter. Uh, I am at the always modest Paul is great 2000, yeah. uh, where, you know, I tweet about movies and stuff. Paul is great 2000. Yeah. I'm giving you a follow right now. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And I'm, oh, how do I do this? I don't even remember how to do the closing anymore. Let me see if I can find it. <clears throat> All right, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We really very much appreciate it. Um, as always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. We know you're not going to, but if you want to, just it's there. If I can use it, if you want or not, I don't care. Uh, make certain to, uh, Fucking hell, I am really drunk. <clears throat> Make certain to scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That is at Scream Addicts, and I am at Jinx90. I am really drunk. <clears throat> 
Make certain to scream at us on Facebook and Twitter. That is at ScreamX, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend.